listening to the bomb hole. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. Going to slide down in big hills. You know what I mean? On a big, nice burgundy snowboard. All right, let's do this. We're here for another episode of the Bomb Hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. First things first, you know I got to ask Eastone, Stony Buds, how are we doing? So good, my dog. Whew. Now to my left, we have Brolin in the booth. Brolin, how we doing? So good, my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I've been waiting to say that so long. <laughs> it sounded good coming out of your mouth. <laughs> hey, excuse the accent, you know. I like the accent. No, it sounds great. Now, some of our listeners might not be familiar with Brolin and things that he's done. So he's one of the most unique people I've ever met in snowboarding in my entire life. He is a snowboarder from Uganda that grew up in poverty. He overcame crazy adversity to get here to the States. He's been competing in all the major contests, all while going to school to be a freaking doctor, okay? He's, he's done medical school, which is more than most people can say that haven't pursued a career in pro snowboarding. Uh, he rides for Burton. He can launch cab nines. He's got an incredible story. It's going to be really inspiring, so we're excited to get into it. Just wanted to give you guys a quick little cliff notes. So first things first, I'm curious, Brolin, is what did your childhood look like growing up in Uganda? Oh, man. Have you ever seen uh, Blood Diamond? Yes. Mm-hmm. Whew. My childhood was the era of Blood Diamond, you know, between uh, having Rhonda have the genocide right on the north, the Congo have a little, having to split into like, you know, two Congos and Sudan splitting. Uh, yeah, my childhood was, it was exciting. It was lively. Uh, you lived as if there was not tomorrow and, you know, you just kind of was survival mode. It's pretty cool, actually. To be a child in that environment, you know, you learn so much from the jungle, from just living in the slams to just how do you, you know, how do you navigate conversations? How do you, how do you navigate yourself? How do you, I don't know, how do you live? Is there like warlords creeping around? Oh, man. Yeah. Child soldiers. So it's just like that. Oh. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. How, how, what ages were you or how old like were you when you lived in Uganda? Like until when did you come to the States, I guess? Let's see, I lived in Uganda until 11, 11 and a half. Wow. So I came to, right before I turned 12, I came to the States. So those are some formative years. So I, I'm also curious, I know, but it's, it's, is it English and Swahili? Swahili? Yeah, so English, Swahili, well, I, I didn't know English until I was, really, to be truthful, until I was 13, but it's Swahili, Luganda, and, you know, so I come from a tribe called the Bantu. I'm a Baganda, so we speak uh, Luganda. Uh, so Haley a little bit and then, uh, now English. So you're from a tribe. I, I'm just curious as like, what, what did you yeah. like, where did you live? What kind of environment? What was that like? Uh, I think because of like a lot of the colonialism that happened prior to like, at least me being born, um, you know, the world was a little bit of like a mangled old colonial buildings that were kind of bombed with a whole wall happening around it and struggle for power. And a little bit of like jungle, so very natural, you know, monkeys in the trees, animals right next to you, snakes, whatnot. Um, so you're still living the primitive life, but you're also living, you know, kind of the transition into the cities and transitioning to, you know, living where the old colonial powers were living. What was the population of your town? Or I lived in Kampala, so I'm, I'm from Kampala, uh, from the slums, really. It's like you go back there, it's like, 
you know, heavy, you know, slam dunk millionaire mitts. Yeah. If you, uh, if you have ever seen that scene where it kind of transitions and sl- the slams, are starting to get built up, but there's still the slams. So picture that, you know, uh, middle of the city, you know, street kid. Um, yeah. So and and then some of the other issues that there there's like you have disease, you have oh, crime. Man. Yeah. What what are the some of the other issues that we don't even see here in the states? You know, so I saw a funny TikTok where. You know, this African was like, oh, people ask me what I do for a living in Africa. You know, the living in Africa is living. You know, you, you, you don't dream of doing other things because you're dodging diseases. You're dodging warlords. You're dodging poverty. You're dodging, you know, just kind of surviving as a family. So I come from a big family. At the time, I think I was the last born. I was the seventh kid. Um, my mother, you know, left when I was about one and a half. Uh, so mysteriously, I did not know if I had a mother or not. Uh, I had great grandparents and great relatives. So my sister, your relatives raise you, you know, between a lot of like instability and just not knowing what tomorrow has to bring. So between surviving as an individual, surviving in the community, and also, like you mentioned, diseases. And and what you just mentioned earlier, we use the term "it takes a village" when you're talking about raising a kid. Oh but yeah, you, quite literally, it seems like your childhood. Yeah, my theme. You know, I like to say to sum up my whole story, it's uh, sub- circumstance and uh, raised by a village, like literally. You know, communities have proved me to like where I am right now. How did you avoid turning into one of those childhood soldiers? Because uh, they put guns in kids' hands young, right? They At put ten, guns in kids' seven. hands. <laughs> they hunt them down. Uh, I had great grandparents. So, you know, before I had a matriarch of a grandparent, before she had passed, man, hearing her stories, you know, she had gone through the, she was born when the British were taking over, you know. Uh, so maybe the end of World War Two, um, as they're taking and siphoning not just minerals, but soldiers and individuals. And she comes through the colonial powers as, you know, they just, one day the British are like, all right, you guys are free. You know, World War II said we can't have any, any like colonial lands, you guys have the power. So imagine the scramble for power. You have forty six like clans or tribes, all trying to like rule each other. She went through three wars, uh, poverty, everything. So like, as a matrix, she just had a hand on all the grandkids, and you know she honestly saved my life. You know, to this day, I just have a couple guardian angels, her, huh? and then I feel like she was reincarnated into the special lady Susan Mygott who became my American guardian angel, you know, these two older ladies that just kind of, you know, elevated me, but really just needed somebody who had been through war and who knew, you know, when do you hide? When do you kind of feel like something is changing? Or she had all the languages so she could speak to different soldiers. You got to learn how to transform your tribe or your tribal language to the next power. You can't speak the power. I mean, they bring their own tribe, you know, so... It's crazy. Yeah, that's Africa was crazy in the 80s, <laughs> 70s, 80s. I imagine she kept food on the table for everyone oh, too, man. huh? She sounds like a boss. Yeah, she, so this lady straight up, she, she's like, for three years, I had one cloth. And if you know Africans, they're very proud, you know? So as a proud, like, lady, she would hide out in the bush, get naked, wash her cloth. So this is like, the, you know what I mean? I grew up before the era of lights. I grew up on the era of candles, um, torches. You know, so come lights and constant electricity was like once I came to America. But she was like in the era before candles and lights and street lights. So like hide out in the bush, wash her cloth, wait for it to dry, put it back on. She was a smart lady, walk the streets. One piece of clothing. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. 
Now, this is an interesting perspective because I'm curious, you know, if that's all, if that's all, you know, you know, you grow up in the bush and you don't know about electricity and, and all these types of things. Like, you know, at the time, were you, were you having a good time as a kid? Were you, was you say you had like a happy childhood or were you kind of like this shit's fucked up? Honestly, as a grown man, I did not know I had a fucked up childhood until I came to American schools. Until somebody tells you, oh, poor African, your childhood is fucked up. I was a grown man by the time I was 13. I could hunt. I could, I could feed my own like relatives if I needed to. I could survive in the bush. I could survive at the house. Like, and it's such a rich childhood because the freedom you have was just tremendous, you know? You come to America, I want to go hang out with somebody. Ah, oh, we got to set up a play date. You got to, I mean, we'll, we'll get into that because I think those were the troubles of the culture's change, you know? Having such a limited freedom and just knowing how to work with the land and making sure you just got home to coming to move into a suburb because, you know, you're a black kid, you're the only family that's black, you got to move different, you know, you can't just wander. I don't know. So let's, then let's kind of, friends, I could talk about this stuff. I, I know, mean, this right? This is fascinating. <laughs> so, I think so it'll all tie, to, tie together. It, yeah. uh, but I, I do want to like uh, move forward into how coming to the States came about. So here's a crazy story. Before I come to the States, we have to bring in my mother. My mother works as a hospice nurse. And, you know, her story coming to America, she had left an abusive relationship. Um, I don't think me, her and my father were doing too well. It was wartime, poverty. So she got an opportunity to come to America. And fast forward, you know, a couple of years while she's in America, and this is before I know she's my mother, she's working for a lady, a lady named Susan Mygat. And while she's working for this lady, she's a hospice nurse. Um, she helps nurse this lady's mother back. She had had a stroke. And through that relationship, they got, like, I think they grew closer. They got to know each other. And, you know, through conversation, research, Susan, and uh, my mother, you know, tells Susan and kind of shares her story of how she got there. She left her children. And I think through a kind heart, um, she told her, you know, I really want to reunite with my uh, kids. And through Susan... My mother's efforts to try to reunite with her kids and Susan having been a wet white lady who knew the system, how to apply, uh, you know, she helped her file for papers. And, you know, having been a kid in the Wharton area with Yusuf and the different entities trying to save Africa, that was, um, I think they started applying for papers. Now that I'm older, I know that they started applying for papers before, uh, before 9-11. And right around that window, that's when they started closing down, like giving out a lot of uh, citizenship. But uh, I got a green card. And crazy, one day I'm playing, I'm in the street, and I thought I was going to get kidnapped. Car comes up to me and my friends. You know, kidnapping in Africa is, there's three types of kidnapping. There's, uh, you need child soldiers, you need uh, just kind of ransom. So there's a lot of kidnapping just to try to get family ransom. And there's kidnapping for sacrificial uh, entities. So people think if you kidnap a kid, you slit his throat, drip the blood around the housing, you get you become rich. You know, there's still there's a lot of culture and a lot of it like you gotta believe it and you gotta kind of avoid it. So if you're in Nigeria, Uganda, you know, Juju's real, witchcraft is real. They believe in some real stuff and they will go out and do what they need to. So the car pulls up. And I'm like, man, we're about to get sacrificed. We're running for our life and this car is chasing us. Lady comes out and somehow she knows my name. She's like, Bulo. I'm like, oh my gosh. She knows it's like, you know, she's going to take me to a witch doctor and pulls over. And I'm like, ah, well, 
there's no more to run. Let's just kind of see, see what's up. She puts us in the car, drives up, but drives us. We notice she's driving us towards the house, you know? Drives up, drives us back to my father. My father's waiting and he's kind of like pissed on the face. He's like, here's a backpack. Hands me a backpack, a toothbrush. And, th- you know, him and this lady and my sisters, we hop back into this car, drive towards like, you know, the ocean. Because I th- used to think the lake we used to have, Lake Victoria, was an ocean. And I'm like, fuck, I'm dead. You know, they're going to sacrifice me. I'm the last born, you know, so I'm done. And we end up at the airport. And through that conversation, as we're 10 minutes away from the airport, my father tells me, you're going to go to America. Uh, your mother has requested for you. And this dude just like straight up drops me up at the airport. He's like, my son, don't disappoint me. School. School is all you need to do. I'm sending you to educate. <laughs> That's it. And I turn around. It's like, gives me the bye. I just I'm walking through the town. And this like my first time at an airport, you know. It's like this kind lady's like, oh, come with me, you know, just like holding my hand. I'm like, oh, I'm done for it. Take me on this big bird. I'm like, yo, you know, we're African. We, I'd not seen a plane. I'd not seen the airport. And I thought I was done for it. I spent three days and, you know, flying, traveling. Now I know like it takes three days, but you spend three days on an airplane. You're like straight up like it was an acid trip, you know, let on. I. As I became a teenager, you know, adolescent, did a little acid. <laughs> Retripped about it, yeah. I was like, man, I probably should go see a shaman or something. Like, this, straight up, I have some friends being like, oh, you, you should come do ayahuasca with us. I'm like, bro, the, the amount of trauma I have, if I did ayahuasca, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. like, I don't know. I don't know if I'll come back, so I'm going to chill. But it was like an acid trip, you know, because I traveled by myself, spent three days that would just pass you from one lady to another they'll sit you down and let I learn it's like you know airports can transform you know a kid could be signed off by airport to be flown by himself and they have shop uh, chaperones you know mm-hmm. but you didn't even know you yeah. had a mother though from did not know I had earlier. a mother yeah you know I I'd met her once but I, I've you know people are like oh that's your mother but you don't pay attention you yeah know, you're a young kid you're like oh, who's this random lady everybody's auntie everybody's mom you know so you don't understand and a lady who looked like me came out it's like, you know, calling my name. I'm like, on the coldest day, I could never forget it. Massachusetts came in and, and they said it on the radio. This is the coldest day in Massachusetts. You know, like, <laughs> my little ears just froze down, you know, just like teeth clicking. Just like I came in, my dad had put me in a jamper. I had a toothbrush, a backpack that was holding the toothbrush and my comb, you know. So I'm just freezing, you know, and this lady brings a coat over that's that's how i got to america one day i'm playing think i'm gonna get kidnapped three days later i'm in, in the america. hot in the hot climate of africa <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then all of a sudden you're just in boston where it's cold as fuck i thought i was getting tortured for the first few like you know days weeks it's like what is this i had seen it in a movie like you know crosby show you see the snow coming down the little black kids skating and you know <laughs> urban you know culture and you come in and you're like thinking oh, i'm going oh america they keep saying america on the you know on the headphone on the uh plane I'm like oh, i'm going to like you know cosby show america come to massachusetts lincoln massachusetts call trees like yeah i'm freezing just white <laughs> everywhere i'm like blind you know that, you'd never seen snow <laughs> never seen snow pulled up like that one day was nighttime. We pull up a KFC. You know, my mom's like, ah, oh, you're so skinny. You need to eat. So, you know, pulls up KFC. But before we went to KFC, we stopped on this road. Makes me pick up a pebble, you know, the African way. She's like, on this pebble, you kiss it. You throw it over your shoulder. Your life in Africa is behind you. 
You can become whatever you want. This is the land of gold. Look at this road. This road has gold. You study, you get gold, you know? And I was like, okay. Threw it over my shoulder, went to the house, and she brings me into the house, and she's like, all right, you know, I'll be back. Do not open the door for anybody. Lady pieces out. <laughs> and I go to sleep, wake up. You know, there's another lady who came in. She's like, Mom, your mom sent me. You know, I got to give you some breakfast. And didn't see her until the next evening, you know. And then I later find out she has three jobs. It's like, I mean, America's hustle. But Amazing. Sh- now, earlier you just kind of briefly said how your dad mentioned your name. He said it differently. Yeah, I How did you pronounce too. that? My name is Bulo. 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 Yeah. Brolin is my American name, you know. So Is it spelled yeah. the same? It is not. It's uh, Bulo is B-U-L-O. B-U-L-O. Okay. Yeah, yeah Bulo. Maybe I should become like Salema. Become yeah, why change my traditional it? name, Bulo. Bulo is a dope ass. <laughs> that's dope. Yeah. But, yeah. Brolin. Brolin sounds a little more. What had you change it to Brolin? Like, was that something your mom did? or No. So, I was named Brolin uh, by certificates. I think my mom has always had like a, you know, forward thinking. She has always known like, you know, I needed, I wanted better for my life. You know, and she always tells you that. She wants better for you. She wants better for herself. And she used to be a huge soccer fan. So in 1990, there was World Cup. And at the time, Switzerland was the team on top. So between Switzerland, uh, Argentina, and Brazil, you know, Madonna era. And the biggest player at the time was Thomas Berlin, you know. And all she could hear, because in Swedish, they put their last names on the back of their jerseys. She had a favorite player named Berlin, you know, and... So I'm named after some Swedish dude named Thomas Berlin. And she put that on the paperwork? <laughs> and she put that on the paperwork. You that know, it's like, sense. this will okay. sound a little more authentic. Yeah. It will come through. The You know, they won't question too much. She basically renamed her son as you came over to America. Yeah, yeah. yeah my dad, you know, kind of is like, hey, man. Well, he, he won't lie. He won't understand this interview. So now I he wanna, has issues I w- with it. But. I want to talk about uh, the culture shock. Because you come over... From a place with no fucking electricity. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're you're in America. It's just like a completely different world. What were the wild adjustments that you went through? Man, I, I feel like my life is a circumstance of like three different culture shocks. So I moved from like poverty, poverty, America. I mean, uh, America, um, Uganda. Came to, I think the first night we spent was in Jamaican Plain. Uh, JP. JP, you know, yeah. you're kind of in the hood. My mom's like, oh, this is the trouble, America. You know, don't don't be like the kids that come from America. I mean, Africa and do this. And, you know, later on, she always threatened me to take me back to Africa. And then she got the opportunity through Susan Maiga to live in Lincoln because they, they had better schools than Jamaican Plains. And, I, you know, rather than being a medical kid, which where kids were transported from the inner city into the suburbs, she wanted to be closer to the better neighborhoods. And then I moved to this suburb. And we're one of three black families. Now, the two are f- ones from Ghana, n- another one, I think, we're African Americans. You know, so that shock of not just living in JP, but going from completely African, I've seen one white person in my life, to Jamaican plane. This is America. Oh my God. I did not move to like New York, Crosby's New York, or America, to Lincoln, suburb of Lincoln. And then later on, I moved to. Jackson Hall, Wyoming. Like, damn. So, I think for a year, you know, school. So, the school for the beginning, I'd never gone to a school. My school was broken down buildings. So, you know, I'd transform. My mom would pay for school fees every once in a while and put me in good schools. But, you know, my dad would also not want to utilize that money well for school fees. He had a lot of kids. Um, So, I'd go under the tree school to my building and my school was one building. 
you know, this big yellow thing picks you up. You have this little card that look on your, on your bus. You know, my mom just sent me out on backpack. She's like, show this, you know. I knew no English. She just showed this young lady this and she, she brings you into this bus and this whole building, computers, like locker rooms, all in one building. And I'd never seen such a thing. Like, I remember just like tripping out and like, like this is what a school is. Walked into the library, like giving out MacBooks, you know. So Lincoln was a suburb that kind of was well off, you know. So the access in the school was just mind blowing. But then the whole year, you know, because you don't know English, you don't know how to interact. So for a year and a half, it was just not only culture shock, it was just like kind of like a trip, you know. Everything was, you're like a kid. Everything was new. Each day was new. You'd never lived the same day. And so how was adjustment, like, not being able to communicate with English? Like, having, did you make any friends or? Yeah, I mean, I'm still best friends with a kid I met the very first day. So his family end, ends up kind of becoming my family. Um, but, you know, that first few months were rough, man. It was so rough between my mom working a lot. Um, so my mom lived in this condo, medium building. She had gotten subsidized housing. And the neighborhood or the neighbors did not like that. So a lot of the neighbors that got the subsidized housing were were kind of parents of like kids who lived in the neighborhood or older kind of white folks. And they would always kind of keep a watchful eye on my mom, calling the cops. So at home, I would have trouble, you know, because you come back, your mom's like, oh, the neighbors called the cops. You're getting beat from your mom. And you're like, fuck, I'm getting a whooping at home. You go back to school, you have bruises. The school's like, oh, we're going to call child services. Uh, something is wrong. This kid's coming back, malnutritioned, like always kind of like, you know, sleepy, doesn't understand. I think it's like, you know, I, I thought I was stupid for a while, you know, because I'm eating ESL hungry as shit, you know, after whooping last night and the teacher's worried, you know, trying to send me to a counselor. So it was just, it's just kind of crazy, you know, so unstable for a while to where like few kids, you know, and few parents kind of brought me in and were like, Oh, you know, come play soccer with my kid, you know, um, being good at sports kind of helped. So I remember I finished out that winter and that next, uh, spring I signed up for soccer. So I played soccer and I did not know English, but I was pretty fast and pretty good with the ball because I used to play soccer barefooted. And because of me being decent at soccer, what ended up happening is the kids and the parents saw that it was good to try to teach me English because, you know, I, I was a stopper, so you control the back line. I was pretty good. You know, I, was, I knew how the ball moved and everything. So for the kids to communicate with me, they, they would start to teach me English. They would bring me over. So having, you know, commanded the back line of the defensive line kind of, taught me English really throughout the, you know, the moments sports and kids would come back and tease me, teach me like, Hey, say this, say burger, say this. Um, no one else spoke your language. My mom did just your mom. That, and that's it. Nobody else in school. No, that would be so hard. There was a few black kids. So there was a couple of African kids. My sister spoke. So my sister, six months, four months later, my sister comes. So I'm in fifth grade and my sister is in eighth grade. So my sister and I share, uh, middle school one year together before she moves on to high school. Um, but also she was having her own issues, you know, adjustment. Mm -hmm. She's a girl. She just moved in in eighth grade. She has no friends. She's new culture. And I think it's a little bit harsher for girls to move than guys, you know. Um, so she really kind of struggled. And you said, too, you had all that freedom as a kid, and all of a sudden you're in America where there's all these rules. That rules. must have been another piece of culture shock for you. Huh? But also, like, moving to Lincoln, Massachusetts, the kids were not kind, you know. Um, bullying was just like, I think from the day, from day one, I started getting bullied. So the first day some kid comes up to me, he's like, woo, 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 and I'm like, bro, 
<laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't speak click. And first of all, that's not click. I think you're trying to communicate because I, I can't communicate with you. You think you got to like, you know, try to communicate like as I've, I'm off a commercial, you know? And they're like, push me into lockers. Like, and you start to systematically realize that like, you, you kind of did not belong, you know? You, the kids were a little more wealthier. You had subsidized housing. It's a small town. Everybody knows you and your mom kind of have subsidized housing. The little African family has moved in. You were probably really skinny and small too, oh, I imagine. Man. Yeah, but the hands worked. <laughs> the hands worked well. You know, I remember I think next I got suspended every single year of until my junior year of high school. From fighting. From fighting. Because in Africa, you know, tribe wise they would just put the kids together, you know. So I went to I went to boarding school in Uganda. So because you couldn't feed a lot of the kids, they send a lot of the kids in boarding school because schools can feed them. So but boarding schools are pretty brutal. So you get a lot of kids from different tribes sitting in one school, different kind of upbringing. So they have this whole macho who's a better tribe, who's a better, you know, entity. So here's what colonial powers did to kind of take power over. They'll create these boarding schools and they would mix like melting pots and kind of mix the hay. And when that would happen is like kids would fight a lot. What ended up happening as a kid, you become a better fighter. You know, first of all, you, you understand the child soldier kid is a better fighter than you. He has like a gun. The street kid is a better fighter than you. Your own siblings are better fighters. So by the time I came to America, like these kids are like, "Oh, I'll tackle you!" I think I remember the first kid tried to tackle me. Man, I just like, like, bro, I learned how to skin a pig, you know, when I was fucking nine years old. You gotta chill the fuck out, you know. <laughs> you had <gotta> a fight. <laughs> yeah, the hands worked. They the still did. Wow. Dude, the sheer amount of yeah. fucking sacrifices that are also made to take you from a like a village in Uganda to just get to Massachusetts to get to Lincoln. It's your story's just fucking unreal, man. Holy fuck. Dude, that was just the beginning, you know? And yeah. you're like, what? You know, so when I people are like, Oh, so how is it coming to Africa? Have you ever tripped acid? No. Well, you should try it, you know, then you would understand because it's like everything was just brand new, bright, you know. Just completely different. That's different. Yeah, it's incredible. So you're in Lincoln and you're going to school. At at, at what point did you uh, did you find the the old snowboard? Ah, so the old snowboard. So I spent a year and a half with my mother, and through the troubles at home and through the troubles at school, there was an after school program. So what the school figured uh, was keep the kid busy, put him in an after school program, and try to kind of eliminate the time he's home by himself. And also we knew the mother was working and actually later on, I ended up finding out it's chill. It was a chill after school program. And every Wednesday you'd go to Neshoba. Uh, so this was a way sick. Uh, yeah. You know, so we we're part of the, what you'd like to call like the lost boys. So the lost boys also, there's this entity of kids who came from Sudan and because Darfur was happening, they had taken a lot of kids into Massachusetts. And what Massachusetts did, a lot of these kids lived in towns like Lincoln, Lexington, so the inner suburbs, and they had programs to try to rehabilitate you into, you know, the community. So the chill program was my rehab. We got in the Shoba Valley. Um, Let's give an air horn to the show. Dude, that's yeah. so cool that the chill program works like this. And, hey, and here works. you are, you know? Yeah, I'm a product. Product so of the, cool. the chill program. I actually went in 2008. I said thank you to Jake. You know, I was like, hey, you know, I'm in the chill program. Thank you so much. I don't think he looked at me. I was wearing like a girl's like baby fat jacket with like, you know, the feathers just like, you know, hand me down that yeah, I you stole. Yeah, you just got from what somebody. you can get, right? You know, he's like, oh, who's this cookie kid, you know? <laughs> but it's kind of funny. 
But so, yeah. So I want to know. So you went after school. You got the board. What was the What was the scene like when you tried to snowboard? Dude, this the scene. You know, I got lucky. I ended up befriending some kids who also, you know, were very enthusiastic about being, you know, going snowboarding. I think the families were very big snowboarders. And when we went there, I, you know, you take lessons. I had this one friend that was like, oh, you know, it's not cool to take lessons. You should come with me. I'll teach you how to snowboard. Come to the park. So if you had been to Neshoba Valley, it's a small mountain, you know. There's one side for ski racing, one side for beginner, which is the middle. And then the other side is the park, you know. Um, so quickly, I gravitated towards the park and towards, like, where the cool kids were kind of hanging out. Because you're cold, um, you know, in the end of the night when you go out there, you're crying. Because, first of all, I never felt my fo- my toes, my fingers, anything unfreeze, you know. Um, and on your show, but if you rode the park, you would not freeze as much. Because, you know, you're having more fun than if you rode the middle. You just kind of freeze. Um, so I, I went in the, sh- uh, the park and I remember the friend I had at the time was a big, like, oh man, like, uh, it was the McMahon family, you know, his name was James McMahon and, um, shout out to that kid and his family, man, give him a home. But, you know, Mr. McMahon was a guy, he was a DJ for Kiss 108 and because of that, he had DJ gigs at different mountains and he would take his family and his kids. So his kids were big, enthusiastic snowboarders. And he's telling me, at first he lied to me. He told me Sean White was his brother, you know. That shit is funny, man. <laughs> classic he's little kid lying. Yeah. Classic, you know, showing me all the pictures. Like, this is my brother, you know. This is what we do, trying to flex on me, you know. Yeah, my family goes to all these mountains. And because of his enthusiastic, I'm like, oh, I'm, I don't want to be a punk, you know. I'll, I'll come around. I need friends. Uh, we'll go to the park. And quickly learned that I, that was not my place, you know, because... I think the kid at the time was Zach Normandy, you know, they're like, yeah. oh, the yeah, pro yeah, yeah. on the show was Zach Normandy, you know, this is the future, and being like, oh, man, I'm too old, I can't even get down the mountain, uh, so I was just a big fan of snowboarding, and because of the McMahon family and the Kiss 108 uh, gig they had, every weekend they'll go to Loon, uh, I think we went to Waterville, uh, Waterville uh, went to Stratton, and he would set up a DJ, so he would play in the lounges and entertain the people, and then they'll get free tickets, and he, I was just the... You know, the kid that would just bring along with the family. And on those rides, the family would try to teach me words, you know, teach me about snowboarding, teach me about the culture. And, you know, so that's sixth grade, seventh grade kind of chill program. Because fifth grade was a blur. I couldn't, you know, that first winter I couldn't snowboard. Uh, The next winter, you know, it's kind of like the chill program. So six times we go. And then that next winter is the McMahon family kind of bringing me around, being like, oh, you know, uh, this is how you snowboard. This is the culture. And that's the era of Fuel TV. Uh, so when you go to McMahon family, they would just watch Fuel TV all the time, you know. And I got a skateboard from uh, Susan's husband Sam, and through skating and wanting to be like a skate kid in Lincoln and being like so like I don't know curious about the whole side of things because like my mom was like, "I'll oh, play basketball, you know, do this," and you know that was fun and I could do it, but like the skaters kind of seemed like to be the cool kids in Lincoln, and you know, so ended up snowboarding. Yeah, it sounds like you got you you found a passion for it quick, huh? Yeah, I mean the passion was uh, before snowboarding. Uh, my home life was not as stable, and what ended up happening is I had an incident in school where uh, you know I think I was so overstimulated that I had like a suicidal incident. You know, so I go home. My mom's beating me. She's threatening to take me back to Africa. Um, then I go to school. This I couldn't really understand. The kids are bullying me, and I had an entity where I put my scissors on my throat you know and you know the school got involved the kids thought you know you know he's gonna kill himself right here and i was just like so frustrated did not know what to do um that started a cascade of getting untangled away from my mom's house 
and having to, you know, kind of get into the foster system. But before that could happen, uh, Susan, once again, this lady comes in and she takes me into her home. So to get into snowboarding, the first year I'm living with my mom, I'm not into any winter sports. I'm just kind of, you know, getting uh, acclimated into the situation. And when Susan takes me in, uh, the school services is called. My mom's kind of getting questioned. You know, she's thinking she's going to take me back to Africa. I did not want to go back to Africa, so I'm running away from home. Um, and there was so much trouble that she realized if she signed me up for programs where there were the, a few of the kids I knew, uh, the McMahon family and Phil Hessler, then I would have a little bit of peace. So she started to use snowboarding as a, she learned as, this lady was incredible, man. She, she would drive a whole hour to, uh, would go to Wachusa because she knew the Hesslers were going to Wachusa and the McMahons. And she's like, she would drive in a whole hour to Wachusa and she would know, she would know like I did not, I was scared. I did not, she would get all the rental equipment, get me ready, sit in the car for two hours, read a book, wait for me. And I'll come back knowing that I was cold. I'll not last as long as the other kids, like crying, freezing, and she'll drive back. And slowly she would just introduce that, you know? And so it was not really until I moved in with Susan, because uh, a year and a half into my America, you know, tenure, I get plugged away from my mom. Um, you know, things are kind of a little bit crazy. Suburban schools do not like to see unstable houses, child abuse, and all that. Um, it so sounds like your mom was really, really harsh on you, huh? Uh, you know, my mom was necessarily harsh on what she knew. You know, I think she was a African parent knowing how to parent like an African because in Africa, I mean, my dad beat me like I was a cow, you know, dude liked the cane, you know, uh, and if your dad was not beating you, the school was beating you. If the school was not beating you, the soldiers were beating you, you know, so you're just getting beatings left and right, you know, hence why the kids, you know, like to test me and you're like, bro, I've been getting a beating since I was two, so <laughs> I, yeah, I could take a beating, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you could take a beatings. I'm sure they could. <laughs> <laughs> so she was just doing what she knew. That's well, yeah. that's well put. Yeah. You got to be fair to her, you know, because I think as I've become an adult, I've started to, un- I mean, I've started to fall in love with my mom and really see a lot of characteristics in myself and my mom and just like say thank you, you know. I remember the day she picked me up. She's like, my job is done, which is true. Her biggest struggle was to take her family out of poverty in any means possible. And her job was, if I bring you to America at a certain age, you'll figure it out. I don't know how to give you anything else, but you'll figure it out as you go along the way, you know? And she has told me that multiple times. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you're a little salty. You're like, I see all these white moms doing all this for people. And for me, my white mom was Susan, you know, and later on became Sandy Hessler. But Susan kind of replaced that. And she became my father, my mother, my grandmother. And, in many ways to where my mother could not give me that. She did not have that. She was working three jobs just to keep the bills, just to, you know, be able to bring her kids over. And to this day, like I think she's like, my job was done. Are you in America? No, you know, yeah, she was African working hustle. three jobs. So air horn, Susan and air horn. Yeah, what do you suppose Susan took it upon herself to, to be that person to help you? I don't know. You know, I, just, I don't know if you guys are religious, great, but like I'm a, a religious person. man, you know, I come from a conservative co- country and like Mother Teresa, I come from the era of Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Mother Teresa schools, whatever. She had come to Uganda. She was my Mother Teresa. She just took a liking to you and just took a liking to me like, to like, gonna, 
She fell in love with you, I imagine, as a person. And I don't like, know. Let's, that let's seems a little. Out. That seems like a divine situation yeah. there. Yeah. So you're in. You're in Massachusetts. You're in Lincoln. You're going through high school. You're. You're. How's your progression of your snowboarding going at this point? When did I you? Mean, when did you start getting it where it's like wildfire and you're like, I'm. I'm hooked. Oh, I was a wrestler for the winters. So you know, I, I remember I wrestled my freshman year. I was a state wrestler. You know, I got I got second in Massachusetts state. I was a troubled kid. You know, so. When I move in with Susan, um, I move. I go back to boarding school because what happens a year into living with Susan, her husband gets cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my whole life is kind of plagued with disease, and this is kind of how I always get interested into medicine. Uh, as a husband is getting cancer, she cannot take me back to my mom, but she cannot take me home because you know her husband is very contagious. There's you know there had to be a little bit of a divide, and so I end up getting put into boarding school. And when I was in boarding school. I go to all boys boarding school. There's a different relived trauma. So I'm not snowboarding for those years. Um, and I'm wrestling. And it's not until my uh, sophomore year, I'm supposed to go to, to a new boarding school where she suggests I should go to Vermont Academy. So I go to Vermont Academy, which is on the Saxons River. So next to Okimo Mountain School. And they had a little bit of a snowboarding program um, at, as part of playing sports. So when you go to these boarding schools, uh, which is crazy. You have to play sport each season. And because you have to play sport each season, keeps kids busy. And for me, I did not, I wanted to try snowboarding because back at home, the friends I'd made in Lincoln were snowboarding. You know, uh, my one friend, uh, Phil, his family would unplug from Lincoln and go to Jackson since they were like in fourth grade, you know. So they were on that whole, like, wow, we're trying to become little competitors. They're coming back with new swag, new videos. So they're reintroducing the culture to me, but I'm not participating in snowboarding as much as they are. Um, and, yeah, thank God for Vermont Academy. They used to compete against Okimo Mountain School, Stratton Mountain School. So the deal was with Susan is I had to keep up with my school and I had to keep up with my reading. As long as I kept up with that, everything else was, you know, Pretty gravy, because that's what you had to do. And she allowed me to, to pick Vermont Academy over the other uh, boarding schools because she knew it would give me a little bit of access to where I did not have the formals for my own friends who were going to these cool places, and maybe I could then become a little closer with those guys. I got to say, bro, and this is freaking wild because I know you as uh, the homie that we ride Woodward and take laps, and we're getting a whole... <laughs> like school on cultural knowledge and your experience that is just like blowing my fucking mind. I just got to take a little, little footnote there before we keep going. Cause this has been, this has been an awesome conversation. Now at a certain point in time, I know you, you moved to Jackson hole. Uh, how did that, how did you go from Massachusetts to Jackson? No, so my, my way to Jackson hole, what ends up happening is, um, the way I get to boarding school is it's a village where, you know, as I tell you, the villagers raised me in, in Africa, you know, village played a huge role. But in Lincoln, as more families got to know me and my story and Susan got to put my story out there to other families, uh, she had gone around to 10 different families, asked for help to see if they could take me, to see if they could help me get to boarding school because I really needed a place where it was stable, where I could have meals and everything. Uh, so as a husband gets cancer, she started to worry about what's going to happen, you know, what's going to happen with my, me living at the house, her husband being contagious, and at that stage, the cancer was getting critical. Um, and one of the families had become very, very close with the kid. So Phil, the kid I meet the very first day, I end up becoming best friends with. And, you know, 
his role in my life and trying to teach me the American culture becomes bigger and bigger. And uh, his family had taken a liking to me. So I'd always gone to the house. I didn't, you know, when I come back from school, I'd go to their house. or uh, I would find myself always spending nights there. And what ended up happening is one day their father, who I admired, you know, dearly, I thought he was the idea of the American dream, goes up to me and he's like, you know, I think I could be a good father to you and I, I can help, you know, guide you through this stage of life. And um, went up to Susan and my mother and sat down my mother and was like, look, you know, uh, your boy's getting to a stage where he probably needs a role model. And um, I think, you know, he fits in well with our family and we make a good family and I would like to see if I could give it a crack. And, you know, it's, uh, Sam, who could have been my role model, was very ill and uh, kind of dying of cancer. And between Susan and my mother, they decided that it was good for me to move on with a new family. Um, so as I moved in with a new family, uh, the family ended up having to move. So the family's like, well, there's one stipulation. We're about to move. Uh, is it all right if he moves with us? Uh, they got the legal guardianship, and uh, obviously Susan was always going to stay my uh, legal guardian as well. Uh, and because of what happened earlier, my mom you know, was very, very... Uh, open to it you know because I, th I think my mom saw an opportunity she's like if I allow these families to raise my son there would there's a little bit of guide like protection you get when you're raised by a white family that you do not get when you're raised by your mom so for example there's one day I'm at school and I'm at boarding school and the police you know something happens in Lincoln and the police are like oh we know the perfect person to go get police come knocking on my mom's door and they're like your son was involved in x y and z my mom's like that's not true like, no, we're true. We want him. You know, it's time to arrest him. We're going to arrest him. My mom's like, my son has been in boarding school for three months. You know, so like that umbrella of like that old Lincoln racism, like everybody's ready to kind of catch you slipping was happening. And my mom realized that by passing me on to uh, Susan and then by Susan now just taking me back to my mother by allowing me to move on to another family, it was actually better for me, better for her, better for our relationship and Overall, going back to the idea, her job was done, you know, come to America, figure it out. So um, in sophomore year, that summer, end of sophomore year, the Hesslers decide they're going to move to Wyoming. And yeah, they're like, we'd love for you to come join the family. I think you make a great addition to the family. Um, come. And I didn't know if it was going to be a month, six months, three months. Um, but I end up moving to Jackson Hall and just kind of get embraced into you know, the boondocks, like I like to call it. Move from the city in the middle of the boonies. This is before, like, you know, Kanye Jackson Hall. You know, this is before Kim Kardashian Jackson Hall. This is like, <laughs> you know, we're talking, like, you know, Cowboy Jackson Hall. Like, yeah. howdy, partner. You know, why, what is this boy doing out here? You know, Jackson yeah. Hall, you know. And it's funny, you know, so I moved to Jackson. And I moved a little bit before the family because the family had gone to New Zealand to go ride and they were very into snowboarding. So the kids are still doing their own thing. I'm not really back into snowboarding. And they're doing a preseason with Jeff Moran, um, who I end up meeting and ends up being my coach. Shout out to Jeff Shen, Moran. Uh, yeah, send the Morans. Both of, you meet his brother, too? The Morans yeah, are awesome. Yeah, Adam Moran. Good yeah, people. Jeff Moran, uh, that's like my mentor. I mean, he's everything, you know, and more than a coach to me. But um, the family send, sends me out, and I'm supposed to play football for the team. Uh, I was supposed to do tour days. So I'm doing tour days. I'm in Jackson, my first time with this new family. I'm babysitting my little sister, you know. She's like, oh, you know, my mom's like, cause so the sister had stayed, the little, so this, the family's four, four kids, three boys, one little girl, and I was going to be the fifth kid. 
Uh, the three boys had gone to New Zealand with Jeff Moran and uh, John Radosky and myself and the, my, the mother and the, uh, the sister was supposed to be in Lincoln. I mean, not Lincoln, excuse me, Jackson Hall. We're in Jackson. It's my turn to babysit. While I'm babysitting, I'm supposed to be playing football and we have these Bronco cards. You're supposed to be selling to, you know, raise money for the football team. So I'm just kind of new to Jackson, just like shocked and like, oh, well, new family, you got to make the best of it. You got to step up, you know, back to like my, you know, Brolin thinking of like, you know, step up, make the best of it. And I'm babysitting and this guy comes up to me. He's like, ah, oh, you nigger. Are you stealing this little white girl? I'm just looking at this guy. Well, I'm, well, I'm trying to sell Bronco cuts. You know, I have, I'm like, so would you like to buy a Bronco cut? You know, do, do not know the lingo. First of all, I moved to Jackson wearing like, I was swagged out, you know, 2008 swagged out, like t-shirts to the knees, you know, wearing gauge uh, earrings. And this guy starts taking my little sister. And this is my th second week in Jackson. So I'm like looking at the guy. I'm like, no, you can't take the little sister. You know, I'm supposed to be babysitting. And this guy's like, you know what we do to you guys out here? You know, we, we noose you, motherfucker. He goes to his truck. He has a gun on the west. Comes out with a noose. This guy's tying a noose in the middle of the square. My little sister's like, so this little girl starts explaining. So he's my brother, but he's from another mother. But like, you know, he's my new brother. He's supposed to be babysitting. My mother's at home. And this guy's trying to take this girl. And I'm just like crying, just looking at it. And the whole town, I'm looking around. Everybody's staring at me. Just like nothing not a single adult came up and was like yo what, what's happening here let's kind of intervene and i just like big well to tears coming out i'm like i i might have to fuck up this guy he doesn't know that the hands work you know back to the hands and take off my earrings take out everything and preparing a noose and this kid hunter piggett runs out of nowhere he's like that's my mom's family friend like you can't say anything and stops it you know and one lady i was starting to use profanity i'm like you call me a nigga, I'm about to curb stump the shit out of you. Obama's president, man. I'm about to, like, repeal you, you know? And this is, like, an instant that probably lasted an hour, but I'm thinking it's, like, lasting, like, six hours. Like, I'm crying. I'm about to, like, realign this, like, old man's jaw, you know? I'm ready to defend the family. And that was my introduction to Jackson, my second week. And I think that incident of standing up for Nikki uh, proved to Sandy, who was the mother of the family, that I'll, do, I'll take a bullet for anybody, you know? And that just kind of solidified me being in the family. And, you know, she went, I think the next, she came back, I come back crying and she's like, why are you crying? You know, I'm like, oh, I almost got lynched. And then this little girl's explaining and cause little girls don't lie. So they explain it word for word. And then this old, you know, this blonde lady is just crying. She's like, why not new town goes to the spot. She asks the people like, did this happen? They're like, well, we thought he was, you know, some tourist, like, the guy just disappeared and then the kid hunter pigger who saved my life like right then then comes up to me explaining what to my mom she gets an apology from the mayor like and she that day she made a name for herself in jackson hall she's like we're the hesslers we're here to stay and this is my black son don't question it you know and did they find the far. guy no i did not <laughs> disappeared this was 2008 too honestly. this was 2008 and then the man comes up to me he's like you know our first uh black individual that was here you know the cowboys roped him and uh they pulled him behind the horse so aren't you lucky that didn't happen to you I'm like shit i'm in jackson hall for a year and a half i was afraid to go into the town square i would just go to school to my house to the mountain like shit Holy fuck! Well, first of all, God, 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 God bless your God bless your family, a. Eh? But that's some fucked up shit. Well, you also breezed over how if you weren't in those boarding schools back in the east, you'd probably be in jail. 
Exactly, you know. And so like life of circumstance. The police do that know? all the time too. It, from, oh, from reading. Dude, we moved to Jackson man. Hole. The police were like, so in Jackson Hole, you have the cowboy families, you have the old generation Wyoming, so you have this new money moving to Jackson. We had a police guy stand and stay by the car, you know, or by our house every single day for like a month straight. But the circumstance of what makes Jackson very special, while that's happening, uh, the patriarch of the family gets cancer, you know, so coming back to cancer. More cancer. More cancer, you know, so I've just, I left one family because of cancer and I'm in a new family now. Here comes cancer creeping. And this is the father. And this is the father. But the difference now is they had given him six months to live, you know. So within those six months, I really, I looked at, I remember giving my mother a call and she's like, this is your chance to give back to what this family has done for you. So in those six months, I was like, while this kid's about to lose their father, I will, I will do everything I can to show them that, like, no matter what, you know, I'm here. You know, we're all his family, you know, because between... So he gets cancer uh, September, and he has to fly back to Boston. So he moves back to Boston by Mass General, and the mother has to fly back and forth. Uh, so I end up, like, you know, stepping up and being like, word, you know, I got you, Phil. I got you, Jack. I got you, you know, Jimmy. And, you know, we're going to get through this. And throughout that process of, like you know, being like, I'll be there. I think the family bond really started to strengthen, you know, because we had all moved together in a new town. Uh, we're all kind of the same age. We didn't have too many other friends. And I think becoming friends with each other allowed us to have this attitude of like, we have each other, you know? So then slowly everybody started to get to know us and the town started to soften up. You know, people were bringing food because they knew the parents, you know, were kind of needed a hand. Um, and then we became friends with everybody. You know, I was the new hot shiny toy. Everybody wanted to become <laughs> friends with the black kid. And I think it was by the circumstance of being one of the few black kids and honestly having a few kids, you know, being more progressive and being so excited to have new people in town. Jackson has kind of has my heart, you know, started off a little rocky and now it's, it's, you know, home. All right. We're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about spyoptic.com. Now, Summer is almost here, and you know what you need for summer is some eye protectors, some sunglasses. So, good news is, Spy has all kinds of new killer styles out there to keep you looking fresh all summer long. You can shop the new 70s-inspired hotspot and the 90s-inspired hangout, both made from 50% plant-based materials, along with the entire sunglass line at spyoptic.com. Best part is... We got a promo code for you. Use code BOMBHOLE15. BOMBHOLE15, all capitals, 1-5 at checkout, and you will save 15% off your entire purchase. So why not support a brand that supports the show and head on over to spyoptic.com. Use promo code BOMBHOLE15. Yeah, I was going to ask a Patreon question about discrimination you experienced, but geez... I think that sums it up. Well, yeah, fire it up. Unless fire you it up. have fire it up, dude. Yeah, yeah, unless you got more. I, I, so, I got a funny one recently all right. with a burden to So this is from Old Nerdy Bastard. Can you share any stories of discrimination discrimination living in a ski town and how have you dealt with these situations? Hit him with a smile. You know. So here's here's one, yeah. You know, I, I have two. So the latest one happened uh I, during natural selection. You know, the whole Burton team, everybody's in town. And I think it was Stun and I uh, trying to go through the line. Everybody has passed to get together as a group. You're trying to get onto the tram. And 
here comes, you know, my ugly ass, you know, smiling away. Like, oh, I'm going to go join everybody, you know, the heavy hitters in front of me. And I'm walking up and this guy steps right of the way. And my brother's in front of him. And it's like, you can't pass. And I'm like, why can't I pass? You know, and it's like, you can't pass. I'm like, those are all my friends. One individual is like, and he's, I'm like, sir, you know, I, you could be my father. Can I just please, you know, if, if, if they don't let you in the gate, you could take my spot, you know, but can I pass and stand with my friends? This guy like, no, you can't pass trying to square up. And before I could say anything, you know, the whole Burton team just turns back. It's like, yo, dude, like he's with us. Like, wh what are you doing? Like, can, can you just let him pass this one individual? It's like, and everybody's like, you could pass us if you want, you know, if it's really that big of a deal for you, you could pass us. But, you know, guys, there was bent backwards, you know, just trying to prove a point that just me. And it's funny, before, while he's telling me I can't pass, other people are just passing him, can't pass, but I can't pass. Oh, jeez. Oh, this is weeks ago or a month ago or whatever. Oh, this is just a month ago. Oh, yeah. you know, uh, Snowbird had a, a big snowstorm on Wednesday. I waited in line at 6 a.m. like everybody. I'm on Wilbert, but I'm solo. You know, I ride solo sometimes all a lot. A lot. You know, I'm busy. I have other things I'm doing. So I'm up there early hood up, minding my own business. And this lady comes up, I forgot my pass. And I'm fumbling, you know, find my pass, give it. She comes up and it's like, young man, you don't belong here. First of all, you can't go up by yourself single, you know? And usually you hit them with kindness, you know, but it's snowing, so I'm kind of, you know, I'm not kind of covered up. I'm like, oh man, it's eight o'clock in the morning and a Karen. But before I could say anything, this is how much has changed. Seven people behind me were like, you know, he was standing in line. He asked the, everybody if singles could come in. What are you talking about, lady? Why are you trying to, like, people. So people had your I've, back. I've never had to have to put anybody or try to get out of character because I think I always ride with kind-hearted people and they realize that, like, I don't know, man, like, people trip. Especially, you know, I love Jackson Hall, but, like, sometimes you get, they get some guests that think their money can, uh, can allow them to trip a little bit. Yeah, they think their money makes them better than everybody else. Oh, I had a guy where I stopped right next to him, and everybody, you know, we're riding with a group. People are going by him, and I stop, and I cover up. I try to stay incognito because of this reason. When I started riding, I started at Jackson, and not only was I embarrassed of my skills, I was embarrassed of my skin color, you know, because of my first early instant that uh, fall. So I would always cover up, just be cautious, you know, you're in cowboy country. Um and I pulled out my face mask, and this guy's like, you fucking baboon hits me with a ski pole, you know? And this is four years ago. Um, and, before, you know, I'm about to cry. Usually, uh, you know, I'm a man. I, somebody hits you in the knee when it's cold with a ski pole. Bro, that, that sting is a little different, you know? You're on top of the mountain. So I'm just, like, holding my knee. My brother comes up to me. He's like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, this baboon came over here, came here. And... Phil's just angry about to fight this guy. And now I'm the one trying to stop a fight between Phil and this guy because I'm like, hey, man, I'm a mountain rider, you know. I, uh, shout out to Jackson Hall. They believed in me and, you know, give him an air horn. Uh, Tyler Lamar and the whole family, the camera family, the family and their administration and, you know, the core locals have always had my back. But, um, you know, I'm like, Phil, you can't beat this guy up because what is he going to say? Well, I got beat up by a black kid and his brother. Between me and Elliot. Yeah, you take the high road. <laughs> it's two huh? people, you know. So it, it's, it's embarrassing it, to hear that this stuff goes on like uh, that. It's all right. Hit him with a smile. Well, that's really fucked up, and it's really good for you to shed light on the fact that it still exists. Because I think, I, I got, we don't see that, but it's so fucked up that it still exists 
in this day and age, it's fucking, cr- it's crazy, dude. It just seems fucking like there's, there's some sick people out there, yeah. man. It's fucked up. You know, it, it's kind of funny. It happens more in America than it does when I go outside of America. Except for one time I went to Switzerland. It was, eh, the Swiss is Swiss. The skiers want to prove like, you know, no snowboarders, but that's not my skin color. You know, you, yeah. I've been, I mean, I've snowboarding literally not just as therapy, but just as something that just circumstantially changed my life. I've seen the world because of snowboarding. I've, you know, rehabbed, I've re phone myself i've worked on my insecurities because of being on snow and you know because of that i've traveled all around the world and i've seen people and just as snowboarders and the community people are so welcoming you know but it's really the the few people that are kind of doing it like ah oh, this is my escape it's like the random like yeah you're not really a part of the court like i mean having like an instant happen like just last week you know the funny part of that is like yeah, when it used to happen when i was you know, new to Jackson, I was like, well, whatever, respect, you know, I'm not that good, you know, I feel like I'm about to drown out here in the powder. Now, I just kind of smile at this person, I'm like, bro, I, I have the skills to belong, you know, maybe you don't think so, but I think I do, so, whatever. Yeah, whether you have the skills or not, though, there's no reason anyone should ever act like that, because the mountain's for everybody at any skill, you know? And you paid, Yeah. you know, it's like, man, it's not cheap, Yeah. I have, I have a ticket, it's not yeah, like you I'm paid out to here be there stealing. Just like they paid to be there, you know, so yeah. it's, everyone has their right to be up there. Another thing you said the other day when we were riding, I, I, I kept going up. Everywhere I go, I, I see Roland. We go, I go to Brighton, and I get out of my truck. I'm like, oh, what up, Roland? I go to Woodward. What up, Roland? Everywhere. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, I've been seeing you everywhere. And you, you had a great thing. You're, you're like, I just want to be a man of the community. I thought that yeah. was great. Yeah. And that, yeah, yeah, elaborate on that. Dude, I, I just I want to be the community has built me, and uh, I'm raised by the village. And, you know, I've, honestly, when I was – 11 years old i never thought i would see 18 and when i was 18 i never thought i would see 25 and bro i'm about to be you know i'm 29 about to be 30 a lot of people think i'm like 22 you know they're like dang you have a baby <laughs> face but um and i just realized by being a man of the community and by saying what's up to either the chairlifts to the random guy um you know shout out to louis vito because he really passed this on uh, what a kind human but like it's like I say what's up to everybody because in the end of the day it's going to benefit you more than hurt you. And talk about like the few incidences that I've had with a few rotten apples, the community has had my back. Now I show up to Brighton because I'm like, I'll say what's up to everybody. You say what's up to me, ex- excuse the accent or excuse if I mumble, but I'll come up to you and be like, yo, what's up? Let's take a run. And because of that, now I could show up and not have this like weird feeling of like, oh my god, uh, my friend's not there to protect me. Oh shit. You know, you could show up and be like, eh, something happens. I could turn to somebody and just give him the eye and could give him the, like, puppy eyes of help, help, help. And they're going to say something, you know? Mm-hmm. But community's there for you if you put in the time. Yeah, you meet all these people. If you don't say what's up, who knows who you're missing out on meeting. Oh, so, man. Yeah. I like to say what's up to everybody, randomly. too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, speaking of Louis Vito, we actually, actually happen to have a guest Ooh. question from none other than Louis. Here we go. What up, Roland? Louis Vito, first big fan. My question for you is, what do you want to get out of snowboarding? And is there a type of impact or legacy you want to leave on the next generation? Deep. Yeah, hard hitting. It's a, a hard hitting question. question right <laughs> that's there. a hard hitting. Shout out to Louis Vita, man. Uh, one of the kind souls that I've been able to be fortunate to meet. And I, I met him at Dew Tour when uh, uh, I got to full run Dew Tour, you know. I don't know even how that happened, but you know, got to get, get to know him. But to answer your question, I think my, my impact is... You know, I've always had this little theme of 
I know I did not go up a stunt doing this, but I, I do belong, you know, and allowing kids, whether you're a kid from the diaspora or a kid from a broken home or a kid from a stable home who just needs a different outlet, you belong, you know, and like the impact of snowboarding is a tool. It's not really, you know, like I see snowboarding. I don't see myself as like, oh, I'm a pro snowboarder. This is the lifestyle. Like I'm fortunate for the lifestyle it's given me, but the therapy that I've been able to pick up from that is really the impact that I want to show people that you could strap in and you could be a beginner. You could be going between tree wells with fresh snow and you could find peace. You know, I, I, I found peace. Well said. Now thinking about your life and your snowboarding career, man, it's just been this like, it just seems like from where you're from to coming to America, to your circumstances in America, it's been this like fucking kind of just this, you've had to just fight dude and fight and fight and then go fast forward to snowboarding and you know, you're, you're getting into the competitive realm of snowboarding and you have such a late start compared to everybody else. You're starting what, like 14 or what? Honestly, I did not start competing until I was 18. Exactly. And then you have, you know, then you, you're competing with someone like Red Gerard, who basically did a back 10 double, like out of the womb, essentially. Like <laughs> he like double corked out of the womb. So like, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, it's a, it's a huge disadvantage and, and it's just like a testament to your, to your grit to like, just fucking just keep fighting your way through. Did you, do you feel like, um, you know, that, that late start was like frustrating at all when you got into the competition scene? Oh man, talk about like being humble, you know, you get humbled when you wake up in the morning at six o'clock, you're in Serbia and a 12 year old kid does a back 10 and you are trying to figure out if you should straight A jump, you know, that, that is very humbling. And, you know, before I can even talk about like the mental kind of growth that happened with that, I just want to shout out to Michael Bell and Nick Popolaski, you know, without those two individuals... I, I think Pops, you know, a lot of people know him from High Cascade and obviously through the snowboarding community. But without that gentleman, my snowboarding is nowhere. Um, he not only humbled me, but allowed me to see my holes and my flaws and rebuilt them, you know. So to compete, what happened is I come back and I'm interested in snowboarding. My brothers are getting into rev tours. I, you know, I'm like, I, I can do this too. And throughout the way, we did a project called Far From Home. And while we're doing this little project, um, the hype gets very real, you know, is the kind of snowboarding is coming in the slope styles. And, you know, my brother's like, oh, maybe you should, you know, try to snowboard more under Uganda. And while that happens to do that, we needed to start a federation. And to do to start the federation, we had reached out to a local ski team in uh, Utah. So I'd moved to Utah to continue snowboarding. I'd fall in love. And the only school to go to snowboard with was Westminster, but Westminster was doing USASA competitions, so little kids competitions and local collegiate competitions. It wasn't as serious as like the level of snowboarding that you know competitive Red Gerards and the Brock Crouches are doing. Um, and what happens? I reach out to Michael Bell, and Michael Bell had had experience with starting the new New Zealand team. He had brought the first New Zealand team to one of the I think the uh, Salt Lake Olympics. And he took a chance on me. He's like, you know what? Yeah, I'd love to see if you could do this, if you could compete. Uh, continue competing under Uganda, and we'll see how we can start the paperwork. I'll represent you, get under the meetings. And he introduces me to Pops. And Pops had a slew of little slayers. I like to say, like, little fucking minions. 
And Pops is like, you know, I heard about your snowboarding. You're from Jackson. You know, can you, can you do a, um, a straight air where Puck City? I try to do a straight air. It's like, okay, can you do a front five? I'm like, eh, try to do one butt check. And these kids are doing back nines, front seven. He comes up to me. He's like, your brother blew smoke up your ass. You suck at fucking snowboarding, bro. <laughs> <laughs> like, humbled me real quick. You're like, you cannot spin. You cannot compete on this level. You need to start from basics. So for that whole year, I'm 19 years old. And every morning, out of my own pocket, and I had gotten fortunate because we had ran a little bit of fundraisers in Jackson. Uh, out of my own pocket, start paying for a team. And I'm joining 14 and 13-year-olds to learn how to snowboard and to learn how to re-snowboard the proper way. So, you know, not hitting 20-foot jumps in Jackson or hitting a pow jump, back-slapping, being like, oh, dude, did you see that? I'm back, keep up. Like, no, you're hitting concrete 60-foot tables. This is what it is. And let me tell you, bro, snowboarding is so hard. No one talks about the mental side and the struggle of learning tricks. And learning tricks at 19 years old where you have to scare yourself, having to break through those barriers, it's something that I just related into my therapy of, like, why I started to snowboard, of, like, this is it. I'm climbing Everest, and this is the challenge. And every time you'd strap in, you know, you'd, you know, when you go back home, your brother's like, oh, man, yeah, you're snowboarding. You're one of the few black people snowboarding. You go to the hill, your whole team is 14, 15, 16-year-old. They're getting into ref towards junior Olympics. They're traveling the world, and they're doing tricks that you need to catch up on to be able to keep up with them, you know, so... Got humbled real quick. And you're not sponsored at this point, right? Oh, no. Yeah. No. Hand-me-down, wearing a size 13. My brother had a size 13, so I would just take hand-me-downs. And what size do you have? I'm a size 9. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> talk about some toe drag. Yeah, right? talk about Bro. some toe drag there and some so, space in the end of the toes. Speaking of uh, Pops, we happen to have a guest question Ooh. from none other than Pops. Here we go. B, it's Pops. Um, I know you used to have pretty strong feelings on rabbit food aka salad uh you, you still feel that way and uh why what you got against salad <laughs> um i mean i got nothing about against salad i think the american uh <laughs> americans are soft man and y'all, y'all grow up with like supermarkets and nice food ready to go you know like i never looked at it as like rabbit food i just like you know so in africa you eat rice and beans the only time you eat chicken is on Easter, Christmas, and uh, maybe when the Pope comes through, you know? So I'm like, bro, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> why you got me eating meat? rabbit food, bro? Like, I'm a rabbit out here, you know? Those <laughs> nice meats. <laughs> I, call, I called uh, Pops, and I'm, like, doing my research, asking him questions. He's like, well, first of all, he fucking hates salad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm You're skinny like, enough, eat, man. Eat, let's eat some meat. <laughs> yeah, hey, man. I would go to bed without eating food when I was younger, you know? Now there's chicken. You could eat chicken all day, every day, every meal. Yeah, every meal, right? All, you want me all eating the time. Rabbit? Hey, we got we got grass everywhere in Africa. You know, I come from a jungle. You can you can eat rabbit food all day, <laughs> straight off the tree. You just go into the woods, all right? Munch. All right, Brolin, aka uh, Bulo, Bulo, Bulo. Uh, we're gonna get into name that video part. How you feeling? Ah, we'll see. Okay. Name That Video Part is presented by Icon Pass, isn't it, Buds? It is, and we're going to be talking about their new destinations today. How many they got? They got 50 total, but let's talk about the three new destinations. We got three new hogs available. We're talking 
France has Chamonix you can head on over to. You got Sun Valley in Idaho. And right here in Utah, what do you got, buds? You got the uh, Pillow Powder Deep Snow Basin. Snow Basin, great resort. So, uh, again, 50 destinations for the Icon Pass. They're uh, worth every penny. So, that being said, let's get into name that video part. Now, first of all, Brolin, how are you feeling on a confidence level 0 through 10? Negative. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give it it a 1. 1, okay. I'll be kind. Okay, you know, I'll say since you, you know, you, you weren't a video part guy growing up, like for the guys that have done parts, it's it's a lot more, they have a lot more to lose. So your expectation's yeah. low. So uh, if you get it, you know, it's a win. Here we go. I'm going to go Stevie Bell. Yes, it is. Stevie Bell. Stevie Bell. <laughs> We got you. A, you got yourself a bomb hole prize pack. Hey. That's a win, right we there. We got a bomb, bomb hole tote. We got a, a bomb hole mug in there. You got a bomb hole staple hoodie. Shout out to Stevie Bell, man. I yeah. used to like inspo. Man, I used to run like his videos and just like watching him snowboard and like everybody around me having their heroes. He was. He was one of my heroes. He, he's someone. He's my hero, not just one of my heroes. He's still yeah. a hero. He's awesome. Solid. What size T-shirt are you? Ah, uh, you know, T-shirt these days. I, I guess I'm getting older, so you got to get a little, you know, tighter. So I'm, I'm a large. All right. I used to go XL, but money. You should be solid with that one in there. Uh, that being said, let's get into part two. Name that video part. This is for the listeners. If you know the video part, uh, what do you do, buds? What you're gonna want to do. The first photo of Brolin that we put up on Tuesday night before his episode drops, you are going to put your answer there. Yep, comment on the thumbnail photo of Brolin with your answer, and we will pick the first comment that's correct. Here we go. Okay. Thank you guys for playing Name That Video Part. Now you just kind of briefly mentioned uh, Stevie Bell. Who were your who were your big inspos growing up? Like who did you look up to when you got into snowboarding? Stevie Bell, and, uh, Danny Davis, and then the ultimate Travis Rice. T. Ricky. T. Ricky, man. Uh, shout out to T. Ricky. I mean, Travis came and taught one of the a ski lesson at the local snowboarding and uh, free ride program, and you know he was so genuine and introduced himself and. Travis actually brought me to my first few sponsors. He brought me to LibTech. Um, got to make a board together. Uh, shout out to LibTech for believing in me and Travis for allowing, you know, those boards. And uh, Dave Merckx, you know, Dave Merckx would just flow me boards. You know, I was just like smacking them in half, trying to learn all these tricks. And Dave would just be kind and just keep, you know, pass, passing them along. But, you know, Travis really played a huge part. You know, introduced me to George and Riley at Union. And shout out to Union and, you know, kind of... Um, those guys because uh, they really they believed in me i didn't have the money i didn't have the access to equipment and if it wasn't for travis and his impact in jackson hall and just me just idolizing him on such a different level that i don't think i would be where i am because you know he he propelled my era of snowboarding especially living in jackson and 
Everything Travis. Yeah, he's a bit of a hometown hero there, huh? Oh, the yeah. Prince of Jackson. <laughs> the Prince. The King, man. The King. The Prince is Blake Blake. Blake yeah, Paul's Blake. the Prince. That's, That's true. true. Now, uh, I want to talk about the fact that the entire time you're talking about pursuing your snowboarding, you're also going to medical school. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'll call it completely medical. I'll call it school, man. I've just been uh, uh, on a pursuit of school for okay. a long time, you know? Um what I like to say is to in my mother's eyes I was always undereducated and in my eyes I thought my peers thought I was underskilled. You know, so to to explain to my mom that like, you know, I'm pursuing this thing called snowboarding and uh to my dad back in Africa, like, you know, I'm not a disappointment and to Susan and all these other families that really believed in me, um, school was a big thing. You know, it's that cliche thing you come to America and my mom told me, like, straight up, African boy, you become doctor or you no respect or you doctor you know so it's like um i've been on a pursuit to become a doctor since i was 14 years old i started working in uh i think i worked in a hospital emerson hospital uh at 16 a little bit kind of cleaning floors and then um shout out to the teton orthopedic program i got into that and got to see a couple surgeries with those doctors and when my dad, uh, my foster father at the time, was facing cancer, got to join in. And because of Dr. Huckberg, uh, Fred Huckberg, a uh, neurologist over Mass General, he gave me my first job and my first research. So we researched basically the mailing system of the body. The, the key, I've always had this little hench that you could solve disease by understanding when disease is happening. So, for example, the notification on your phone that tells you you have an Instagram. So I spent five Years working at Mass General doing that, uh, every summer going back while people go to High Cascade and um, all these other places, I would basically go back to the hospital and, you know, gloves on and become a lab guy. Um, and yeah, now I'm in Utah, just over University of Utah, still schooling away. Working on your doctorate, right? Working on the doctorate. How you know, many years have you been going to school so far after high school? I, I did, I did a two undergrad degrees i did an undergrad in chemistry and public health uh and then i did uh epidemiologist and so i was supposed to do an md mph uh double major but i was also on the side trying to compete under the ugandan flag for the olympics so uh did that uh, and then started the doctorate side of things my, my dream is to be the dr harkett of salt lake so i, I less want to cut into the body more want to uh, kind of transition between the DPT and the MD side of things, you know, become the go-to guy for action sports. So sounds like you're well on your way. <laughs> a lot of schooling, you know. You got to trust that, you know. At least you could trust if you come to me, you know. The, the knowledge is there. The hands work. Well, everyone else is relaxing after a day of snowboarding. You're just right to the books, huh? Oh man, midnight studies. You know, it's, shout out to Salt Lake. So when I was thinking about choosing places to go to school. I looked at Boulder, I looked at, you know, obviously going back to the East Coast, but Salt Lake is the only place where your own ski teachers and your own lab techs and professors, they go snowboarding. So if there's a, you know, a storm coming in, the professor's like, yo, I'm going to the mountain tomorrow. <laughs> Everybody you know, does everybody's going to the powder <laughs> day. Um, and my schedule and, uh, I, you know, I, I was fortunate to meet the administration and kind of always, you know, the idea of becoming a man of the community, uh, building people who could support you, I'd come in. Uh, Kay Studpole was one of the administration ladies I would always meet with. And I just kind of, I don't know, built a good team where you could go do school at night. I do lab research at night, do, uh, you know, doing the 
era of COVID, I was helping older patients um, kind of navigate that whole situation of death and insurance, Medicare, and kind of um, blood tests, um, really kind of helping families navigate COVID. But you could do a lot of that at night, you know, because a lot of my education has not put me at a place where I'm making decisions, but I'm more kind of taking directions and really comforting people. Wow, well, that's extremely commendable. man. It's but crazy. W- one thing I think it's interesting, I can't remember who I was talking to, but they were mentioning the fact that you, since you're around these highly intelligent people, the people you're going to school with, you're around a lot of very book smart people, and then you get around snowboarders, which none, many of which have zero book smarts in the sense like they're like a lot of snowboarders are intelligent people, but there's a lot of fucking hollow headed snowboarders. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, I think I can't remember if it was pops or somebody was telling me that maybe you almost like kind of have to like dumb yourself down a little bit. Yeah. Out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I like to say like on paper, you know, <laughs> you know, just like when you're hitting on girls, you're like, yo, on paper, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the perfect catch, you know, I'm, I'm like the white chat on paper. And then you, you start to like talk to their parents and like, oh shit, he has an accent. I was black. You're like, you're like, oh, you got to dumb it down a little bit. You can't, you can't outsmart people. Also, it doesn't, it's not fun. You, know? <laughs> you got to meet people where they are. But yeah. So, uh, I want to dive into the, the chase to, to make the Olympics for team Uganda and, and kind of preface it with the fact that the goal was just to make to make the Olympics, it was just to, to mm-hmm. make it to the event, and it wasn't like I'm on a podium or whatever, right? No, what happens no, happens. No. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't live in La La Land. You know, there's no illusion to it. My goal was very simple. I want to participate. I think I belong, and I think I can work as hard as those guys to try to you know bridge the gap of lessons or whatever the trickage is, and be there with the boys. You know, and I think in so many ways I was able to do that at different stages where whether it's qualifying for World Cups or, I mean, qualifying for um, World Championships and, you know, traveling to Europa Cups. My goal was to just show that, like, you know, just because I was born in Uganda doesn't mean I can't chuck myself off ice. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And a couple of things, Pops was saying that, like, if COVID hadn't happened, it oh, would have we, been... We were dancing in China, man. COVID yeah. kind of fucked Co- Excuse me. You can say that. You can say that. Yeah, COVID kind of <laughs> fucked me. You know? It ran me backwards. You know, I just split the split the chicks and just did me dirty. But because you were, weren't able to go to all the events, get the points you needed. And, yeah. And to, to, so that's that's an interesting footnote in itself. Was too. that because yeah. of schooling too, or no? Just COVID? No, I honestly, you know, so my first trial to try to chase the Olympics, uh, I met when I was young. I met Sage Coxenberg. You know, Sage was another. Uh, idol that I idolized and just watching him go to Sochi and his whole pursuit I remember talking to him about it and you know kind of getting inspired as I was getting going um, and what you start to understand is that whole side of snowboarding fist points uh, chasing you know world cups having to have a quarter spot it's completely different than like your normal go down the mountain you know and um, I had tried to chase it in 2018 and I'm in Kazakhstan so I'm in Kazakhstan after a night of partying. We have 10 different, two Europas, maybe uh, a couple World Cups we're supposed to hit. And you go to Europe, you kind of try to stay in Europe because my cash was a little tight. And I'm partying, partying, and in Kazakhstan, they have horses. So they eat horse meat, you know, because they're Kazakhs. They're, I think, uh, the old horse-roaming kind of people. So they're like Mongolian. I'd had a couple chunks of horse meat, you know, and a little bit of heavy drinking. And the next day, I'm 
supposed to be competing so i'm supposed to have practice and then competition but i'm like yakking you know and i did not want to tell michael bell i was drinking the night before you know so you're like all right i'll go to the hospital i'll get a anti-nausea pill well i go to the hospital they give me an anti-nausea pill but they realize i'm african and like oh well you don't have a doctor here let's do a couple of checks they check my heart and my heart is beating at like 45 bpms like oh yeah i'm chilling you know we're not doing anything we're in kazakhstan almighty you know whatever and they think i have a hole in my heart so my first time trying to pursue the olympics i was supposed to go to 2018 olympics but thank god well not thank god because it's a little bit of a weird coincidence i could not make it to 2018 olympics because in kazakhstan while they take where they're trying to give me an anti-nausea pill the doctor injects me with an amphetamine that speeds up my heart so here I am, showed up to Kazakhstan, you know, we're all excited of a series of competitions we're going to do, match to, you know, uh, I think it was uh, 2018 would have been Pyeongchang, Korea. Uh, and I'm in the hospital in Kazakhstan, telling they're telling me, you got to get stapled, you know, you we have a hole and I'm butt naked and they have like the, doing cardiograms, my heart is just basically being shown there and Michael Bell's not allowed to come in, I'm in a section with older patients and they're telling me there's a hole in my heart. So they had to basically chemically and uh, they had to call the head of cardio. They had to bring all the doctors and see if a uh, competitor was going to die during a competition on their floor. And they were trying to prevent that while they're giving me amphetamine. So my heart's freaking out because normally it sits at 45, 40 BPMs. And these guys are like, oh, shit, you know, I think you have a hole in your heart. So my first run to the Olympics uh unfortunately it wasn't my own doing i got drunk the night before showed up in a kazakh hospital got shot up with speed and almost had a heart attack so i had to fly back to mass general spend like two weeks in a hospital i actually make sure i didn't have a heart attack what ended up happening is i do have an abnormal arrhythmia which happens from just being you know old i don't know really genetically my genes are very old and what happens is my heart beats very slow and it's very heavy you know it's from just the conditioning of the environment and yeah. they do not have the ekgs to match that so my ekgs are a little bit off which the doctors in kazakhstan were right on that aspect but then they thought i had a hole so they prematurely went through steps that and they should not have you were actually fine though uh, well they gave me a hospital induced heart attack from the the epigen yeah, yeah, because actually when they gave me, what they do is they give you blood thinner if they think you have a hole. It thins out your blood so there's no cloggage, so your blood keeps flowing. And then they give you something to speed up the blood while it's thin. So, you know, almost like trying to find a leak in a tire, mm -hmm. you can find it faster. So they actually gave me a heart attack because my heart does not go beyond 100 and so that, that really low has resting heart rate, though, is also good for, like, long-distance running. Oh, yeah, it's right. good for that's athletes, what, that's right? That's like... Yeah. My sister was, was so good at running, I could eat a marathon, you know? I, <laughs> yeah. I come from a country of <laughs> yeah. marathons. Yeah, you, you know? do. Yeah, uh, I've been to Kazakhstan, so is Chris. I don't know if I'd go into the hospital there. Yeah, that seems like a dicey and, thing. And do that, <laughs> do Old that whole thing. hospital, you know? Let them tell me there's a hole in the heart. Oh I don't, I'd be a little God. sketched out. <laughs> I was crying no for three days, you know. Yeah. I called my mom, be like, I'm sorry, I'm a disappointment. This is where I'm lucky that I had a white mother, you know. So I called my African mother, and she's like, oh, my son, I'll pray for you. I called my white mother. I'm like, I think they're going to staple me. And she's like, wait, what? I'll be there. Yeah. I'm on the flight. You know, this lady <laughs> took a flight. She did. <laughs> she's she like, went do out to not do you know, So she shows up, and they're like, uh, she's like, I'm here to pick up my son. They're like, what? I'm here to pick up my son. So you're under the Ugandan flag, competing under the Ugandan flag. 
But the loophole is because I'm from Africa, they don't give out visas easily to travel. So I travel under the U.S. flag because I'm now a U.S. citizen. I'd flown in as a U.S. citizen, but I'm competing as a Ugandan uh, athlete. So this lady comes in white, blonde hair. She's like, I want my son. He's supposed to be here. And they're like, what son? Like, and in Kazakhs, they don't understand like a white lady can have a son that's black. So they're mm. like, no, no. This is like, I want my son right now. She's like, you have to sign a social. So she just like, they made her pay all this money and then sign somewhere. They were ready to harvest me for parts, man. Yeah, they, it's all about money. I was ready. Yeah. They were about to cut me. <laughs> they were about to slice my ass, bro. Oh, man. Rush. We, we got pulled over. You <laughs> yeah. just give them money and all Yo. that shit, too. You're just like, They yeah. were about to harvest you. They're like, Yo. low resting heart rate. Dude. Let's go. Low resting heart rate. Let's we give him a couple injections. He could just <laughs> die right here, you know. Oh, Kidney's looking good. Wow. No, so, and then you fast forward to the, the next Olympics and it's the, the COVID fucked you. Yeah, so that gave me a reason to go back to my sponsors. And, um, you know, I was lucky to be fortunate to befriend a lot of families in Jackson. So shout out to Ryan Foley, Mr. Foley and his family have not only been so kind to me, but they are kind of those hidden angels that allow me to propel forward. Snowboarding is very expensive. Like a lot of people don't understand that. While you're trying to go to school, trying to feed yourself, trying to be an adult you're also trying to find points and uganda is not going to be like oh here's 100k you know they're just kind of like oh good boy you know you mm -hmm. do that for the country so you're like you had a couple families that you had to go back to and tell them hey you know i came short with my goal but this is what my points are and this is the evidence at that point it actually helped out because of pops's tutelage and being under like that team i'd started to improve i started to catch up to where i was supposed to be and actually shooting for the next olympics was more reasonable and targetable than trying to come in and do whatever so i had qualified for because i was under the ugandan flag and because of the work michael bell was able to do i was able to earn a spot at a lot of uh competitions where uh obviously from the last points of trying to go to the olympics they carried over i qualified for a couple of big events that carried more points and if covid had not happened it was basically playing chase with points you take your points and you, you go to Olympics, you know, you, you wave the flag, you say what's up to Xi Jinping and call it a day. <laughs> Amazing. Now, I got to ask, too, because talking about, um, you know, you, you said something about like uh, undereducated and under trick educated. What was the word you used? Under uh, I mean, I, to my mother, I'm undereducated to my peers. I, especially as I continued and improved with my snowboarding, I felt like I was underskilled. Now, I got to ask in regards to that, like, do you feel, do you feel like uh, acceptance amongst the snowboard community? Man, I, the level of acceptance I've been able to get, I think I had to earn it, you know, so yeah. the, there's a level of, ent you know, entrance. So you show up and people are not curious, they see all these different competitions, they're like, okay. And then there's a couple of competitions where I broke through and I think whether it was snowing and people were struggling with speed and i was just like i'll eat knuckles you know i was that kid who uh, i'll fall you know um i think the hype from far from home was a little too much and what happened is that while i'm pursuing school my brother and uh the partner of galen knows that had come on board to create this film had created hype to try to sell a film so all this hype was like oh he's gonna be the next uh you know jamaican bobsled team and here I am being like, bro, I, don't, I am not trying to be the next uh, Eddie the Eagle, bro. Like, I'm not going to be a punk. So, like, while they're trying to, like, build up all the hype, I'd have to show up and match the hype, you know. And as I started to show up, I realized, okay, you need to take this seriously. Not only are the coaches laughing at you as the, the top of the laughs, but the riders are going to laugh at you if you don't, you know, fucking back up the hype. So, 
And as I started to show them that I could back up the hype, like the amount of friends and coaches that like will come up to me and be like, hey, can you do this? You know, shout out to Nicole. Nicole was uh, the U.S. snowboard coach who, you know, she would come up to me and be like, oh, hit it this way. Um, you know, Reynolds, Dave Reynolds would, I remember my being in due tour, you know, he came up to me and he's like, he did not have to. He's coaching Red and all this U.S. team. He's like, hey, you need to lean your weight forward. You know, you kind of leaning back as you go into a bigger jump. It's snowing. You need to attack it, you know, and continuously, like the coaches of the U.S. team, the, the pipe coaches and all these other teams just kind of bought in and they were just like, yo, like this dude is not that bad. Let's really give him t pointers. You know, I spent last October in Sasfe, no coach, flew in by myself. I've done this tw uh, three times now because of Charles Beckingham and shout out to Charles just yeah. and his family allowing me to come run the camp. Um, but I came in and you have coaches where there's Danny Cass and you're like geeking out like, oh, Danny Cass is teaching me how to ride pipe. Oh, if it's like, you know, I don't know, like Chloe's coach or if it's the U.S. coach, they're all there just stoked to see that, you know, you're backing it up with your mouth. And they see you enough at all these different entities that they're like, all right, this dude is, he's serious about it. Mm -hmm. Well said. How did you get linked up with Burton? Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to say thank you to the Carpenter family, uh, to uh, my TM, Zach Nigro, Pat Dodge, and the Burton family because I think that was the first time that a company really believed in what I can do, you know, uh, and believed in the bigger picture of just like, oh, maybe he's trying to make the Olympics. Let's try to get on the hype. Um, it was one day before Nature Selection, the mountain had asked me to host because I'm a mountain rider and, you know, to Brian, to Flying Brian, I think his mom said he was the first black kid to be sponsored by the mountain. But Jackson Hole, shout out to them, had, had been helping cut checks to allow me to compete. So because of Jackson Hole's support, they had chose me to show the Burton team around. And it happened to be on a day where, man, I think it was each hour was refilling. And when you know Jackson Hole, it's not a mountain that a lot of people, a lot of people are good snowboarders, but when you show up to Jackson, there's a reason why Blake Paul is a very great snowboarder. You know, like that is his playground. You show up, you get humbled. And then while showing these guys around, I think we had Donna uh, Carpenter, George Carpenter, and like some of the heads, um, I just was like, you know, what, what's the worst that can happen? Let me just show them a great time with Jackson. These guys don't think I'm, you know, they, they're not looking at me. They're looking at bigger people. I'm, I'm never going to win a podium. And I think I showed them a great time enough that that evening. I just kept getting invited to, like, kind of little get-togethers. And um, Zach and Pat reached out and were like, hey, man, we'll be honored if you could be on the team. And I don't know. I can't thank those guys enough because – They've, they've believed in me. You know. I have so a dope. Patreon question for you along these lines. Do you want to talk about Patreon for a second? Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the cool <laughs> things about Patreon that's uh, that's kind of uh, we don't talk about much, but I think it's fascinating too. Is like if you look at our show, we're able to do this because of our sponsors, which are a huge help uh, because of people that that buy merch. But the Patreon's huge because we're we're you know largely a podcast that's funded by the people, and since we're funded by you guys, the listeners. We get to say whatever the fuck we want. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if we can swear, we, we can have we can cool guests on, we can talk, we want. If we want to talk <laughs> shit on a brand, we can. If we, you know, we, we, we're really not limited as to what we can and can't say. And that's thanks to you guys, our Patreon members and our sponsors and, and supporting us with the merch. So Patreon, a uh, great way to support the show. So this one is from Ricky DiMacchio. 
What was it like working with Zeb and Virgil on the upcoming Burton Off-White collab? Oh, man. First of all, I just want to say rest in peace, Virgil Abloh, you know, um, what he has done for snowboarding and for, you know, characters like myself and believing in me and honoring me as uh, a steward of his line and, you know, allowing me to link up with Zeb. That's something that forever has changed my life and I would forever be grateful for. So shout out to Virgil and his team and uh, the whole collab. Um, but it was it was amazing to answer your Patreon question. It was something surreal because at the beginning, we did not know Virgil was going to pass away. He was supposed to be a part of the shoot and really have a hands-in, hands-on experience. And, you know, Burton being kind of cautious as he passed away, should we run this? And the team deciding that this is a great idea to run it um, has been something that is spectacular because that guy, I think he knew, you know, God was calling him and he wanted to set something up uh, for people like him and people like myself. And I think I want to be that light of continuing that because you see what Zeb's doing and he's like, you know, he's basically the, uh, he's holding the torch for snowboarding and not just snowboarding, but the culture uh, and his acceptance and then linking up with him. I'd linked up with Zeb and Red Bull uh, in New York because um, Red Bull was launching one of their new flavors and I've been fortunate to work with Red Bull multiple times on different things and Zeb had invited me out uh, but it was not until that Virgil shoot where looking at that impact that man this is not just for me as a snowboarder or for Zeb as a snowboarder this is for the, those kids that have born yet you know for, for the future like you know, so I was I was just grateful the whole time, and I was just honestly I've I've just been a fan my whole life, and the last couple of years I'm I'm just a fan of snowboarding and a fan of the culture that like I showed up as a fan, and I hope that showcases in the launch. And um, I hear I think this I I mean by the time this episode comes out we could say this, but first day the first board raised a hundred thousand no three hundred thousand dollars one board sold for a hundred thousand dollars. Ooh. So the impact that, you know, that whole mission and the campaign that it's going to have and then uh, with Burton's commitment for $300,000 to buy pack programs, I mean, snowboarding is alive. And Vojo was here. He really killed it. And he was sick without telling anyone when you guys set that all up. So he would, have, of course, wanted that to keep moving forward or else he wouldn't have yeah, done it, you know? I had a conversation. Yeah. I, I was fortunate to have a phone call with him and... uh just the stoke of like, yo, we're gonna. He literally said it as if we're gonna ride tomorrow. Like, hey, yeah, I'll see you. I'll see you next month. And you're like, oh, word. So you know, he hit very hard hearing his passing. And yeah, man, Virgil he was, was here. Passionate about snowboarding. He was passionate, and it's cool. He did those projects in the end. And yeah, yeah, that's it's cool. I didn't know it raised that kind of money though. That's. I mean, that's just the first soft yeah, release. You that's, know? Yeah, that's so crazy. to see what Burton has lined up with and. The designs he, he put his own penship to and what the team is trying to do. And just, you know, it's not just for the snowboarding and the action sports and outdoor industry, but it's kind of under this whole umbrella of like fashion and kind of opening the gates to everybody, you know, and many different entities where gets, you know, it's about time, you know, it's yeah. 2022. Showing other kids too that there's a place in snowboarding for them and everyone's yeah. welcome. Well, there's also, that's, that's a good kind of thing I want to dive into too because if you think about it, you know, from... From mine and mine and Bud's perspective, like we're we're two white dudes. I grew up snowboarding, and everybody, if you look at fucking ninety percent, ninety five percent of like snowboarders, we got to see 
is white dudes, you know? And so you know, grew up and I was, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that, that guy looks like me. I can do that, you know? And, and, you know, having yourself and Zeb and, and the black snowboarding community, like, seems like it's, it's flourishing now. Do you get a ton of messages from kids that are, are like, you're, you're inspiring them? I mean, all day. And then those kids are inspiring me, you know? And I, I think for a core snowboarder, you know, they maybe they could look at me and be like, oh, aren't you the kid who tried to go to the Olympics? You know, maybe you're Eddie the Eagle. But for a kid who does not understand the intricacies of snowboarding and tricks at that level, they're looking at me as like, oh, wow, like, I, I, how can I come ride with you? I have requests all the time. For I mean, I met up with a uh, Jasper today, one of the homies being like, I made a trip to come try to ride with you. You know, I know you're around these areas, you know. Uh, and I, like I said, I want to be a man of the community. So I answer that. And I think... Um, I learned this from Salema, you know, having been fortunate to meet Salema, you know, short story, I'd met Salema, he had come out, uh, you know, because he had gotten involved with Far From Home, and I think the day he, he had come out, I had a huge biochemistry exam, you know, so my head was just fried, you know, I'm like, shit, if I fail school, I'm going to fail all this, so my head was somewhere else, and I think he, he thought, like, I was not as serious as snowboarding, but over the years, he really saw the effort that I put into it, and we, you know, I've been a distant admirer and he has kind of been a distant mentor and uh his involvement in Burton and then kind of what he wants to do in surfing and in the culture and then with Virgil you know I think that brings everything back together you know and just you could see it you see it in the DMs like I have him and it's also even wild when you look at you know the Virgil thing too because even just last week, Buds is, uh, did a shoot with Jaden Smith, and he's all hyped on snowboarding and fashion, and it seems like there could be, like, this floodgates of culture crossing, and, like, it's becoming, you know, the doors are opening. It's like, fucking come on in. You know and what I mean? He talked about Virgil as well and how, how the passion for snowboarding between those two is something they had touched talked with with each other and yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think there's going to be some changes going on and it's yeah. because of you guys, and that's so cool. I mean... Virgil Especially being so cool to people DMing you and meeting them and riding with them. I mean, that's how you pass that torch and keep yeah, more I mean, I'm still geeking you know? out. I'm like, why are you hitting me up, man? Have you ever come to Utah? There's so many pro snowboarders. Your heroes are here. I meet my heroes every day at Woodward. You know, you guys are my heroes. And you go to Brighton, you meet your heroes. So, like, having somebody geek out at that level and just, you know, the, the road that Salama and Virgil have been able to pave for individuals like myself to come in and be like, you know what, let's see if we could continue to carry that torch. And um, I was with a homie, Brian Reed, uh, on a recent Burton shoot, and he's like, yeah, Travis Scott's managing his stuff. And, like, Dave Chappelle's trying to get into it. And watching, like, ASAP Rocky, um, ASAP Ferg get into it, you know, I'm like, damn, like, ASAP Ferg is out here, best friends with Zeb and, you know, snowboarding. So I'm stoked to see what the future of the community and the whole space, you know, I think we could be the next skateboarding and kind of what skateboarding was able to do in the 2010s. I think that's what's waiting for snowboarding. It's amazing. And also the the thing that's cool too is like, you know, I, I think you mentioned it earlier, you kind of brief briefly grazed over it, but you were talking about like snowboarding being your therapy and how everybody should experience that. Yeah. I mean, my job is not to snowboarding. Snowboarding is... My lifestyle, my therapy, my, my job is to try to be a doctor, you know? <laughs> so that I've never really approached it as like, oh, wow, I'm out there trying to snowboard. I'm, every day, you know, I'm like just grateful to be out there. And I look at it as a lifelong activity 
almost like how people look at surfing unless of like you know hop into it and try to chase the dream for four years or try to chase that sponsor that might last three four years i look at it as like you can find yourself in the mountains mm -hmm. a life it's a, it becomes that the thing that's great about skateboarding is it be it becomes a lifestyle yeah. like you're like what do you do like i'm going to the skate park tonight. i go to the skate park i see my friends and the fact of the matter with snowboarding, the thing that, that is a bit of a barrier, obviously the fact that it's massively expensive, but it's also seasonal. So, so like, you know, how do you carry that passion on? I mean, it's like when, when summer comes, my brain doesn't turn off thinking about snowboarding. It's still, it, you're still doing it in your head, even when it's not there, yeah. but, but trying to get more people like us that are, it, it is, it's, it's our lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know, like, and being proud to identify as, as a snowboarder, honestly, like something that's fucking cool. Not like, oh, yeah, I'm a snowboarder. Like, no, I'm a fucking snowboarder. This shit's sick. Yeah. I got to meet, like, this dude, Dan Schultz, like, this old, like, Whistler snowboard pro, and you just, like, and uh, Kevin Jones, and you're like, bro, like, you, this is different. Like, it's uh, not only are you learning on how do you get through adversity, how do you, you know, overcome something, whether it's being cold, whether it's getting down a mountain, whether it's learning a trick, to how do you adapt as your body grows, as your injuries grow, and... You know, I don't know. I'm 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 here to stay in snowboarding and kind of die. I'm I'm a be a dead snowboarder, die hard snowboarder until I die. And I think that's something that you know we can open up gates for for everybody. I think it will cheapen it. You know, as you get more people with transportation, social media, and people having more access to things. Especially, I think what COVID did is it opened those floodgates. You know, people do not want to just be siphoned up in mountains. Oh, I mean, excuse me, in cities. Or just doing the same activities. They really want to do something in case the same thing happens again, like another pandemic. Maybe you could be in the mountains by yourself, you know? So, I don't know. Amazing. Therapy. We, we got to get into uh, a little pub beer oh, crapshoot. It's so, that time, huh? Yeah, Buds, what are you going to do? You going to crack a can? It's that time, brother. <laughs> Let's go. Cheers. Yeah, Roland's been putting them down. Buds, how's that thing tasting? It's delicious. It's my favorite part of the podcast right here. It's delicious. Is it nutritious? It's uh, not so... Semi? Semi-nutritious. Semi well, we always like to say... If I'll tell you what, it's cheap and fun. It's cheap. It's fun. It's beer. Uh, you know, we always like to say if you're... Uh, you're going out tonight and you're thinking about getting um, absolutely fucking annihilated, blacked out, plastered, gooned. Uh, get yourself some pub beers. Also, do it responsibly. Do it responsibly. If you want to have one beer, what do you want to get? Pub beer. That's every time. That's absolutely right. Now, here we go. You got to roll some dice. Welcome to the Pub Beer Crab Shoot. All right, roll those dice and we'll tell you what the our friends at Pub Beer want you to do. Seven going on there. Seven. Oh, this is one of my favorites. Who's one of your favorite people to party with? Bro Crouch. <laughs> That's a good answer. You want to elaborate? <laughs> I mean, those guys just like, we we got to party in New York and with Luke Winkerman, Bro Crouch, it was Danny Davis, and I was just like a bystander, just be like, damn, this is unreal. You guys come into places, take them over, and just like <laughs> live, you know? Like, there's no tomorrow, and it's, it's good, you know. You don't, you don't come. It's not like a negative partying. It's so, like, very genuine. You give time to everybody, but you're still getting, like, you know, a little wasted. You're still having a great time. I don't know. You know. You know who gets me going in that group you mentioned? 
Danny Davis, when he gets tuned up and he starts doing impersonations of people, oh, is out of fucking, and he starts <laughs> talking about Mark Mick, yeah. and he's like, he's roasting everybody, and like, and imper- he's so good at his it. His impersonations Dude. are out of hand. His yeah. Mako impersonation is yeah. out of hand, right? Like, just like, and then like, he used to impersonate him, and then I got a chance to, I drove up the, ba- uh, the bus to Sasfe with Mako, you know, we sat next to each other. Got to know each other really well, and it's like, I see the impressions. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. So good. Yeah, you guys got a good crew over there when you get the, the Burton squad. I've kind of mm-hmm. angled. It's, it's a fun squad. I feel like with. an imposter in that squad, you know? We pulled up to SAS Fair, and I was like, I froze, you know? Butt chicks clutched. I'm just like, what the <laughs> fuck, man? Like, <laughs> this, is, I mean, this is something else. You gotta cool with that shit though, because you just you know you you should be there. You yeah. gotta re- get you gotta stop with the Louis was telling me that Louis <laughs> Louis like dude, Bro. he kind of feels like he shouldn't be here. It's like dude, you should be there. Don't I, I pulled up. I'm like, yeah, you know, I guess I I do a back ten. Everybody's like, yeah, I guess I do a back sixteen. And you're like, bro. Yeah. We're here for like six weeks. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's yeah, watching kids in. do eighteens and just being like, oh god. All right, that's what I'm chasing. Yeah, but you know what the thing that also you don't realize in the contest world? It's like, you're like, oh, I'm doing back 10s. Oh, fuck, like, that's not good. And it's like, dude, I've never done a back 10 in my life, yeah. and I have my name on a snowboard, and I don't ever think that thought. Like, I'm not like, oh, I, I it's like the con- Bro, contest. I was doing Kokomo's warm-up, uh, man. Yeah. Kokomo would show up. She's like, oh, back 10. Psh, uh, hello. <laughs> back 10 is a fucking advanced maneuver though uh, yeah maybe not next to mark mick or kokomo because those guys are fucking those guys are freaks those guys are freaks and isn't yeah. your next pursuit did i read it's powder it's powder man I, yeah, I, so you don't I, have to worry about yeah, that I, i've anymore. worked hard enough you <laughs> yeah. know I, I think i have enough of uh, a little bit of a flay on my snowboarding these days to take it to the pow yeah, you don't, I gotta, I think you don't I gotta worry about there. those crazy maneuvers that we can't even count up no i'm not ready not to get in the pow but shout out to those guys, you know, because whenever I'd show up, they were like, you know, Jake Hunter, whether it's Sean for Simmons, they were just like, yeah, just follow me. Uh, you're doing a little bit of this. You know, the the whole team, what I found out about that side of snowboarding, everybody is on the same page. Everybody's on the same team and everybody wants everybody to eat and win and come down the chairlift as stoked as they, you know. So whether you're doing a back three or like I'll have moments of like, all right, my takeoff's a little weird. Let me rework him. You'd have Nicole come up to you be like, Ah, oh, join my team, you know, Finn's here, like, all these boys are here to throw down, and you're like, the Canadians are down, everybody's down, so. People Feels care like more about if you're cool than, and if you're just, like, having fun, and if you have good energy, than if, what you're doing. If you're doing back 16s and you're a dickhead, nobody gives a <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> nobody yeah, cares yeah. if you're on the team. Nobody cares. <laughs> no. uh, yeah. That's it. That's yeah. They just yeah. want to hang with good people. Yeah. Well said. All right, well, in that case, I think it's a good time to get into Hot Takes. Hot Takes is presented by Oakley Goggles. Uh, I've run. I got some clean new line miners. I got them right behind me. Clean. These ones uh, aren't Woo. the ones I've been wearing, but um, great, great gogs. Uh, Eleven out of ten recommend. Rock the mod five Eleven. helmet. Recently new to the helmet scene, so been running the Oakley helmet as well. And that being said, we like to start off with the MJ of snowboarding, the Michael Jordan, both male and female, from your perspective. Oh, that's too easy, man. T. Ricky. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah. T. Rick. Rick. Okay. It's my MJ. You know, I, have a, I, I can only, I would say a second to that would be Sage Coxenberg. You know, maybe Luke Winkleman would be, but he's too young to be a He's MJ a young MJ. Yet. He's like a. MJ in the making. Yeah, yeah. I want to say like a Steph Curry if we're going on those references. He's a Steph Curry, man. Yeah. Kid got, got everything, you know, jumps, rails, style. But yeah, T. Ricky. What about your female version? Jamie Anderson. Nice. Too easy. I mean, 
less on the I know a lot of people know her on the accolades and what she has done, but like as an individual talking to her, like I mean, going back to feeling like an imposter in all those camps, like this is one of like the females that will come up to you and talk to you just like a normal person. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, how you doing? Get out of her way just to be like, Hey, how you feeling? Oh man, I feel the same thing. Share mentally what she's feeling and be down, be like, Oh, you wanna take a lap? So for for me, that holds more dear than like kind of what you're collecting on your trophy case. Mm-hmm. Well said her character. Now, uh, we like to ask, you go high backs over uh, the pants or pants over the high backs? I, I had a moment where I was riding for Union and, you know, and them, them team unions just, you know, it was a way to get that swag looking good. So I've just kind of kept it. And then, you know, I'm rocking some dope like cartels, cartel X's with the Burtons, so... You got to show them off, you know? You not trying off. to hide them. The print looking pretty, you yeah. know? Sheesh. All right, who's the most underrated boarder? I want to say Jed. Jed Anderson? Uh, no, Jed. Jed Sky. It's Jed Sky. Oh, Jed Sky's a ripper. I like that. Yeah, he's a, he doesn't get the shine he deserves. I like he's that. Dope. It's a solid yeah. answer. Uh, okay, best style. Ooh, man, Pat Favre. Father Brothers. Wow, I love, love that. that answer. Father Brothers, <laughs> yeah, like not only are they dope humans, dude's got style, man. Sheesh. Okay, if you Pat go- Father basically lives at Brighton right now too. Yeah, he's, he's just <laughs> there. Every and Joey Father, you just like Joey was the father of fucking Brighton. You show up and you're like, oh yeah, and he yeah. says what's up to you, and then just laces something. I think laces. they're actually sleeping under the wall right. Yeah, they're lately. pretty much. They have like a couple <laughs> sleeping bags under there. Right. Uh, if you could go heliboarding with three people in the world just for fun, just for good times. In AK, low angle, fun, poppy terrain. You're launching 360s. Who are you going with? Oh, man. I'll take Jeff Moran, Louis Vito, and Steve Aoki. Woo! <laughs> yeah, I saw you linked up with him recently. Yeah, I went heli boarding with he Steve Aoki. He, he took my ass heli boarding, bro. Thank I you, Steve. Last night. Hey, shout out! That that was probably a memory. You so know, he already, <laughs> lived, he already lived one third of this. How, one third what, of that. What, what made that transpire? Like, how did that all line up? No, I, sometimes you know, my life has been kind of a crazy, like circumstance filled thing. You know, you just get a call and you're like, "Hey, by the way, somebody requested you and." I got a call from Pat Dodge. He's like, hey, Steve Yoki wants you to come ride. You never you know? met or anything? It never. You know, just drop brawling, you know. I'm like, bro, it kind of pays to stand out a little bit. <laughs> that is dope. <laughs> Holy shit. Especially being that you never met or anything. That's just incredible. Never met, and I got to meet such an incredible human, bro. Like, take away his, obviously, accolades. But I, I like people, like, as they are, as humans. Who are you as an individual? Who are you? with all this stripped away, you know, cause you never know it could go away and just the adverse knowledge he had and just kind of like what he's tapped into and him as a snowboarder, you know, he was actually dope. As a yeah, he loves snowboarding. Dude, right? Yeah. He's gigged out on snowboarding. Louis. Yeah, exactly. Louis Vito hit me up a few years ago. Classic Louis lineup. But he's like, Hey, do you want to go snowboarding with Steve Aoki? I'm like, yes. And we're like <laughs> launching three sixties off like little side hits. Cause it was early. And I think he might've done one of his first three sixties or, he learned, and you're talking about like he's like a foot off the ground. Like what's, this is, and he is fucking amping, dude. Just loving he's it. He's like dude. geeked out off of it, like you said. He's just hyped, ripping. And I didn't know how old he was. So I was like, man, you're ripping as if you're 20. I'm like, how old are you? Oh, dude, I just, you know, he had a whole thought of life that was. I, I want to tap into, you know, he, he, I want to tap into more people like him. You know, that's now, cool. Now we gotta shed light on the fact that Brolin is the first person in the booth. To be fucking wearing his <laughs> snowboard pants. He came straight from the hill 
in his boots, and he's been swishing for the whole episode. <laughs> yeah, he's in his boots, right? Uh, he took the boots off oh, now. The boots are off. I, I got the right. Bumbas, you know. <laughs> okay. Shout out to Bumbas. Shout out to... Look yeah, at the feet good, man. Keep the footwear dialed in. <laughs> yeah, uh, slap some respect on, on wearing the, the snowboard pants in the studio. That's commitment to the yeah, game. That's yeah, I got to run up to Woodward, you know, take a couple laps. Yeah. Shout out to Woodward. You could take like 20-minute hot laps, you know. <laughs> You're all brighten in the morning, do Brighten's a quick the episode. And Squeeze in a quick bomb hole. <laughs> I got shit to do, dude. I got to get back out there. Hey, season is ending, man. It was such a short season in Utah, and I feel like it's just running away from us. So I hope it's going to pile up see, like before Miracle ends, you know what I mean it's coming more is coming well we gotta we gotta talk about your setup our listeners love knowing what board mm-hmm. you ride your angles your bindings your edges your, how you set it up man I'm on the host man this is this is probably the best host you could buy uh, the custom obviously everybody who competes or who rides you know first park all mountain backcountry I tested it out. I took it out in the backcountry at Whistler Works. I tested. I took it out of big jumps at Works and, and no more riding. It just looks good underneath the feet. So just on the custom right now. Uh, every once in a while, I run the tree, uh, the hometown hero, and then I also run the three thinker. But the custom works. Is it special or is it just right out of the plastic? Dude, I'm, you know, I'm just kind of average Joe. It's straight out of the plastic, okay. you know. What size is it? Uh, it is a 158, you know. So 158. Um, the special ones, I, I wrote a couple of the special ones and, you know, they changed mine, but I'll, I like the straight out of the box 158. Uh, sometimes I run 160 um, from trying to hit bigger jumps, but, you know, it's springtime, so 158. You got cartels on there? A little bit of cartels. I run them. Uh, I like to set up because of Jeff Moran. I, he taught me the high backs, heavy high backs. I'm uh, I think a two and a half on the high backs, you know. Your forward lean. That little forward lean. So you have a little more edge control. Yeah, uh, a little more edge control, a little more bending the knees. Uh, since I learned how to snowboard late, I had an issue of bending my knees. I would just bend to the west. So the high backs really helped on that. And, yeah, I'm running. I'm actually running more switch setup than regular, so it's kind of set up to land switch. So I run a negative 10. Oh, no, negative 11. And then I run a little bit between the eight and nine on regular. So it's so you get more out. angle on your back foot. It's more angle on the back foot. So you can, you know, because it's a little bit of a twin directional build of a board. So you can ride it a little more comfortable when you land switch. I like that. You detune or you just take them out of the plastic? Straight out of the board, man. I'm a, I, I, you know, Rel's still is not my best friend. I never see myself going out to the streets to hit him. So you, you need those edges for the big jumps. So All right, Brolin, man. We've fucking had a banter journey here this has been a great podcast i'm like inspired and uh i'm just happy i got to have this conversation with you before we wrap this thing up we always got to ask about thank yous you want to throw some thank yous out yeah i just um first of all i just want to throw thank you to my parents for you know giving me the opportunity to be alive uh i don't know if they thought i would make it this far uh susan my god uh sandy and chris hessler for giving me a family uh, my sponsors, uh, my team manager, uh, Pat and Zach and everybody at Burton. But really, I want to also thank, uh, you know, Ryan Foley and his family for supporting me. And also Jeff Moran for having my back throughout this whole process. And Nick Popolowski for humbling me and believing in me and really making me the snowboarder I am. And with the support of Michael Bell and my brother Phil Hessler, um, for everybody that was able to have my, you know, have my back, and for some of those people, uh, 
that speaking towards Bombus. Bombus was a company that, you know, I ran into them. It was Alex Cohen who met me playing basketball while I was living in my car, uh, a Trillum up Mount Hood trying to access, you know, trying to learn how to use snowboard in the summers. And I did not know of the company. It was a small company in New York and met the owners, Randy Goldberg and Aaron uh, Walk and, they have so far had my back ever since. So I just want to say major, major shout out to those guys and thank they're you. They're a sock company too, right? Yeah, they're a sock company. And thank you so much for you guys hosting me, the Bob Hall family, Ethan, uh, Chris. Uh, such it's fucking dream come true. It's an, <laughs> I so don't want to cry, but like, it's here. an honor, bro. It's an <laughs> honor, you know. What's crazy is you hear your whole story, and it's so easy to forget you're going to be a doctor one day. Don't sue me yet, you know. I mean, there, there's, there's steps to that. Well, <laughs> where can people find you, uh, like on Insta or social or all that? Man, I'm, I'm live on Insta. Like I said, I'd like to be a community man, so you DM me. I, I got you. I'll DM you back. Man, I'll, I'll be on my phone too much. Um, but Insta, if you see me in Utah, you see me, uh, I don't know, you see me in Wyoming. Shout out to Sandra. Uh, with Visit Utah, became a Utah, uh, well, was on the process, worked with Utah Tourism, and I've been representing as an ambassador the state of Utah. So, you know, I get a lot of people shouting me out, seeing me everywhere. So hey, if you see me somewhere traveling, I'm always in the airport, sleeping in airports, sleeping on the streets, hit me up. <laughs> What's your Instagram? My Instagram is the, the Byron Ma. So, you know, you need it to be an incognito because of medical schools. They kind of oh. search you up so you can't just throw out your name. Got you. Um, All right. So I needed something that still was me, but allowed me to kind of separate, you know, medicine and kind of being a professional doctor. Because, you know, my future patients, hey, man, like I study hard. Don't don't, <laughs> don't sleep on me. But, <laughs> but you know. Well, yeah. amazing. It's been an amazing podcast, amazing conversation. You are inspiring so many people, and uh, myself included. Just keep doing what you're doing, dude. We fucking love it. And that being said, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, you know, if you haven't yet, don't be afraid to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any. Uh, thank you for all of our Patreon members. You guys fucking rule. And we'll have another episode coming at you guys next week, over and out from the bomb hole.